This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 846, Comic Talk Spotlight on X-Men, House of X, and Powers of Ten. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 846. It's our Comic Talk Spotlight on uh, House of X and Powers of Ten. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. I'm joined today by two special co-hosts. Uh, one of them, first I will introduce the godfather to my son, Nathan Strzok. Say hello. Hi. <laughs> and uh, also joining us is the godfather to my daughter, Paul Scores. Say hi, hello, Paul. Everybody. <laughs> hi. <laughs> so today it's it's kind of it almost feels delayed, but um, we're talking about House of X and Powers of Ten. This was the big kind of hot thing that came out in 2019. Uh, we're still feeling the reverberations of kind of Hickman being the kind of master overseer with Jordan White, the editor of the X Men line. It kind of re- revolutionized everything. It really made people excited about X Men again. So finally, the Overlord of X. Yes, Overlord of X. That's yeah. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah. With Jonathan Hickman, it's not hard to imagine him as an overlord of anything. So sorry, I cut you off. That's all right. So let's uh, let's let's talk about this. So before I really get into it, what what were you were you guys reading any X Men before Hickman kind of came on and decided to shake things up? Where were your where were you before Hawkspox kind of changed the landscape? Paul, just uh, yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, I don't want to talk over anybody, so which one do you want to and Paul? Um, so, yes, I was reading X-Men Red um, at the time, and um, I think, was it X-Men Gold? Okay. And not really Blue, um, which were the, I guess those were the, this, and then I guess a, a little stint of Uncanny came out just after all that before, but I didn't really get, I was, like, I was kind of really, knowing this was around the corner, I really didn't give Uncanny... Um, the time of day, to be honest, that little run there. Um, but you know, the X Men had been a mess for for quite a while. I, I think Marvel had the hardest time figuring out what to do with them. So it doesn't surprise me that they gave the keys to the Overlord to kind of write his graphs and uh, and uh, get a slip sheet paper out and, uh, and build this new world that uh, we live in today. Hmm. Nate. I, I might be disappointed to my answer. I was only reading Old Man Logan and Wolverine with uh, with Laura Kinney. So I, Wolverine's one of my favorite characters, maybe my favorite character. So that that's where I went. Um, I, why did I, what did I drop off? I don't know. I was reading a bunch of stuff during Utopia, and maybe Necrotia is where I kind of just was like, uh, no more. I don't. I don't know. Somewhere around there. Um, although I will say, I mean, we did talk about this like, when Bendis did his run. I did read the Bendis run, so I guess I did read further than that. I guess after Bendis is where I really stopped reading X Men books. Okay, so that's not too bad. I mean, that's like four or five years ago from now. I mean, a lot obviously yeah. happened with X Men in the in the meantime. But you know, Bendis kind of ended right when Secret Wars happened, um, and then we kind of had new stuff after that. Um, I was still reading. I read that kind of uncanny run that Paul mentioned, um, which the the first like ten issues I think were weekly at the time. It led into the Age of X Men, which was really much of anything uh, but then we did have this brief run which was really kind of exciting with Matthew Rosenberg which felt very like frantic like you know I, which at the t- 
time, I thought it was building to something with Hickman, and I guess we can talk about this, is that Hickman's run kind of doesn't care what came before it. It's just kind of like, we're doing something new. It wasn't really worried about kind of fixing or looking at any of the plot lines from the storyline that came right before it. It just kind of said, no, we're doing something fresh. And so I think that Paul, originally, I think that was kind of uh, not disconcerting to you, but felt kind of weird that we just kind of move forward and kind of forgot what maybe had happened before it. Well, it's, it's, it's a bit of an issue with my initial buy-in for the whole thing because, you know, as much as we're all watching, we're all watching WandaVision now, right? Yeah. So I kind of feel like, you know, this is Hickman Vision. We're, we're watching this as a bubble X-Men thing that's his world, um, you know, because as we'll talk about it, as we go through this, a lot of things just kind of come out of nowhere. And, and, and you know, with, with the crazy uh, reveal about what Moira is all about, like – which timeline are we in? Which life are we seeing? You know, is all this going to be a big thing for a number of years? And then we'll revert back at some point. Ten years? Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're in life ten. We are in life ten, yes. It yeah. says it in the thing, and also, how could it be anything else, right? After everything being named after X? Like, of course, it's a life ten, hours of ten, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but if you read the one graph, I think we're led to believe... Whoa, whoa, which the graph? There are many... Many grass, but but the, the one that that lists all the lives, mm. right? One through one through ten, yeah. Uh, life four seems to be has some insinuation that that's the six one six life that we all kind of know before she takes matters matters into her own hands and tells Xavier early on, hey, shit's gonna go down if we don't get our crap together, and that's what changes like the past. See, that's interesting, yeah, because there is some overlap there. I don't know, maybe we can talk about that, like, I suppose, as we go on. It, it, I, th- I think it's hard to talk about this graph without showing it to people, but the, the medium of podcasting leaves it, yeah. leaves that somewhere lacking. Um, so my answer to that question is, you'll be surprised, Paul, uh, very different from yours. I, I don't see it, that, which is why it's good that we talk about this. Like, I like that our group is... Is different or diversified. I see that I see Hickman's run very much as a as a as a synthesis of many many X storylines. I see him pulling from um, we talked about this in our private conversations from um, uh, AVX with the idea of the Phoenix Five, what Magic and Peter are doing, and they're going and making improving the world and bringing getting rid of famine. Like Peter's, you know, uh, what did they they. They hyper hydrate and terraform parts of Africa, and then they, you see you see Phoenix Peter basically plowing the fields, kind of like this homage back to right, when he was discovered in Giant Size X Men, plowing and, and growing crops, and and the X Men now are bringing extra extended life to humanity. They're bringing medicines, so there's that utopian kind of terror um, gifting. There's there's the utopia. I said utopia. There's the, the utopia storyline where the X Men are all gathered together on an island as a refuge. I see Necrotia stuff, Necrotia X, with the resurrection of all these dead mutants as a way to kind of figure out how to re, you know reverse the the Scarlet Witch's no more mutants storyline and also a little bit of of Morrison's ge- genocide and Genosha. So there's it's acknowledging I feel so many storylines and saying hey here's things we want to kind of reverse and things that we want to keep. Um, and so, I mean, there's probably other ones I'm not even thinking of. I mean, obviously, there's the obvious nod to Giant Size X-Men number one. And then 
of course, Vulcan is here too. So then there's the um, the Deadly Genesis uh, rebooting thing about how Krakoa kind of comes back into the into the ethos. So I I see him as, and I don't I don't want to do too much about what I think the author intends because I don't know, but I, I think he's well studied in this history, at least to some extent, at least the larger picture. And it sounds like he's combining all of the Hickman stuff, like red mass from mars mm-hmm. and all the and the politics of east and west and of manhattan project and all, all he's very much into politics clearly and then i was even thinking like i love this comic called great pacific i don't know if you know this this comic um by joe harris and martin morazzo but this is all about uh, a, a guy making his own island off of the great barrier trash pile uh, it's not the, not the Great Barrier, the Great Pacific trash pile. And so he goes there and tries to claim an, a, a nation state. And the world governments are like, you can't create a new nation state on that garbage. And he's like, why not? So I, I see a lot of like influences, that I, even Robinson Crusoe, right? Or I, you can get a lot of these, or great, Swiss Family Robinson, this idea of tropical island, new country, a family there finding its way. So I just, I, I, I'm sure that's not, a list of all the uh, the reasons why this this, this storyline exists. I don't I don't know. I'm just when I think about it, I just I feel like it is a very natural progression for the X Men. And I guess to add on to my previous answer for Adam's question, I, I was reading Wolverine books, and I'm I'm kind of pulling at some Bendis books, mostly in a great desire to stay with X Men, because I don't know if I've talked about this at all in any of your previous podcasts, Adam, but. I think I have a very similar history to the two of you that uh, as a kid, I loved the X-Men animated series. I sought out comic books whenever I could. I slowly found my way into pieces of Age of Apocalypse and Onslaught and a bunch of 90s storylines when I was a teenager. And ever since, it's just like – and no other comic – even when the X-Men I didn't feel were very good, it's just like no other comic was as awesome to me and – and I, I don't know if this is too much for maybe where we are at the beginning of this, but just more about me. If you, if we could talk, can I talk more about me? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the reasons why I connected so well with the X Men. I mean, there's a few of them. That that Night of the Sentinels episode, those two episodes are dynamite. Like uh, as far as a pilot goes, mm-hmm. introducing the characters, introducing the stakes, making you want to be there, making you want to be at that mansion. I know other people have other moments. They have the Kitty Pride years, right, in the, in the 80s. Um, they've got maybe the Australian period as well, the late 80s. Any of those moments that have made people wish they could be a member of the X-Men. Um, I, I, I was a teenager, well, a very young teenager, I guess. I was maybe like 10 or 11 when that show came out. And my, my whole teens, I felt like an outsider. So the X-Men appealed to me because they were the outsiders of the Marvel Universe. And I think Spider-Man, to a degree, kind of an outsider from time to time and so that kind of brings me to him and as i got older i feel less and less an outsider i, f- I still am i mean i'm still like a, in geek culture and i still talk about things and i make references to things in the place where i work and my like co-workers don't know what i'm talking about but i i think you know connor goldsmith in his um in his podcast Sripa podcast he talks about how the x-men are at their best when they're a minority metaphor so for me in high school i mean i'm a i'm a white male like I, I i'm not really an outsider in a minority group in almost any way but as a teenager i was in my high school i really was in this small group of kind of like rejects someone they might call me and i you know i was bullied as a kid by people who were like oh you know the stuff that you like or you're whatever or i wore glasses and people picked on me for that but as i got older and you know i got rid of my glasses and uh 
I, I don't feel like people see me as an outsider because I'm not. I'm not a minority in my country. So I think the minority metaphor, I, I, I've left it, and now I can appreciate it for to, to the extent that I was. I can appreciate it in a more in an intellectual way rather than a, 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 as a heartfelt way. But I still have always loved what the X-Men stood for or stand for, and I feel like they've lost that minority metaphor over the years. This comes to bring us back to Powers of X, House of X. Now, um, you know, I, I this is an island. This is status quo. I really want to live on that island. Like the way I felt when I was younger and I wanted to be in the X-Mansion, I really wanted to live on the X-Mansion. I, I, that, I, every time I see the island, like I read this series because I want to see the island more. I don't know about you, but I, every time they're there and they're hanging on the beach or they're in the hot tubs or the, I guess the springs or they're at the bar or they're just kind of just dancing or talking and like I, I want to go there. That's a place I want to be. And, and it's not just because it's a beautiful place. I get this feeling of family, right? This connectedness of family that after Onslaught, the X Men are just, they're bashed, they're broken. You guys know the issues I'm talking about. Uh-huh. Uh, and they're in the mansion, and like the power doesn't even work, and they get together for a meal, right? And they're eating, and you know, uh, Roro goes up to the roof with Logan, and they're having a conversation. Like these very quiet, intimate family moments. And Iceman's playing stupid tricks on people and freezing the seed of people, or I think Psylocke. Um, you know, the, the softball games, the basketball games, the picnics. All of that stuff is the family aspect of this group of people who rejected from their homes because of how they were born, and they find a family, and they're the only ones who will accept each other. That stuff is completely missing from the, the Fox series, you know, the Fox movies. I, I never get a sense of family. It's it's a little bit in pieces of the Avengers stuff, but um, you know, it, it, because this has been missing for so long. I'm, I'm dipping my toe into X-Men over the past decade or so, trying to get pieces of what I, I saw in the 90s, and, uh, and, when, and and I don't see it until now. I really see it now. It's, I'm surprised at how much I like this because of what, how I grew up with X-Men, and, I, and I, I, I'm just trying to communicate that and not take up too much time, so I thought I'd stop talking. <laughs> One of my takeaways there, Nate, is that you're an Avenger now. <laughs> I'm an Avenger. Yeah, I guess... Yeah, my identity literally is like an Avenger, those people who are part of the establishment. And yeah, I am, right? I'm, I'm like 39 male, white, cis, like I straight. Like I'm not marginalized in any meaningful way. Um, and so that kind of I'm an outsider teenager really was a time span. And I, the older I got, yeah, I feel like I've... I've only become more Avengery, I suppose that's right. Or Fantastic Four, if you will. No, you guys are Fantastic Four because you have kids. <laughs> right? Your, your establishment, everyone loves them. They're part of the mainline universe. They're not hiding in the shadows. And they gotta, they got to wrangle these babies. Right? <laughs> Very true. But I can relate to a lot of what you said, Nate. Like, I'm a couple years older than you guys. But, um, you know, it was interesting, like... When we were growing up, like reading comic books and, and enjoying the, 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 the cartoons and stuff like that, we were like the, the lame nerds. You should have been done watching that back when we were in grade five or something, right? And, you know, you look at where we are today and how pop culture and, and, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all these comic book movies and things have exploded. And now, you know, you're almost not the cool kid anymore if you don't like superheroes and stuff. It's almost gone a full 180. Um, and so it's kind of 
nice to see that, you know, back then, yeah, we might have been picked on or teased a little bit, but we stuck to our guns. We enjoyed what we enjoyed for Krause of what the stupid other people thought. And, uh, you know, we're better off for it. And, and now those same people are coming out saying, hey, what's going on with these X-Men characters or Venture characters? And, oh, now you think they're cool, eh? So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because even in my own like household, my parents would be like, you know, when are you going to grow out of that stuff? You know, when are you... it's interesting because I actually didn't really start buying comics till I was thirteen or fourteen, which is much later than most. Like when I, whenever I interview comic professionals, they're always like, "Oh, I grew up with them. I was like five or six years old." And I'm like, I just didn't have access, and my my parents didn't really care for them, so they weren't like introduced. And maybe I, you know, saw some on the on the spinner racks when I was like maybe nine or ten. And then you have the X Men animated series, which is you know my first major foray into comic book characters in a big way. And then I don't actually start buying comics till like yeah ninety. Five ninety six on a regular basis and by then I'm already 12, 13 years old and my parents are just like waiting for me to stop and I think when they when when, when I was going to get married they're like aren't you done with this yet? And I'm like nope um, whereas you know with you know Paul and I's children uh, not children together obviously our <laughs> separate children um, they're growing up in a household where in households where you know comics are accepted and again in a time and place where not just in your house are they going to be accepted but also broadly you know that everyone is watching watching these comic book movies and coming together well at least they used to back when we were allowed to um, but you know they're coming together and watching these comic book characters which was not a thing that existed for us when we were younger um, you know we, we, we were lucky when we got a you know something that, that kind of snuck through it's like um, uh, Tibor a friend of the show recently sent me a I guess he I don't know if he watched it. I think he must have watched it with me when it first came out. But did you ever, guys ever watch the Nick Fury telefilm with David Hasselhoff? Of course I did. Okay. <laughs> so when that happened, that was a big deal. And it wasn't very good, but it didn't matter because it was Nick Fury and he looked like Nick Fury. And he was on a, he was like in a movie. And maybe we get more of them. <laughs> yeah, he, he had an eye patch and he had, did, they put a little silver, right? They did. I, mean, I say, of course, I say, of course, not to, I don't, I'm not, you know. To, to, to deflect what you're saying, it's just the Gen X, the Gen X program, that movie, and Nick Fury. It was advertised on a commercial, and I knew it was a Marvel property, so yeah. I had to see it. I recorded them both. Yeah. Anyways, he uh, he he sent me a screenshot. He was able to track down. Apparently, they did like a 10th anniversary DVD of this Nick Fury telefilm. So he has it. It's slowly oh, wow. it's slowly getting to him, and so at some point, I'll probably watch that with him again because. You know that's that's a piece of my like my childhood of of wanting to see more representations of these characters. Even though I know they're not good, Nate. <laughs> no one said it was good. Yeah, I know. I I'm not telling you how to father your child. <laughs> After all, oh, he's not going to watch Mr. that probably. Mister Fantastic over here, and I guess you're also Mister Fantastic. Um, heaven forbid, you know me as what, what? I know Quicksilver <laughs> in the Avengers or something. Well, Quicksilver uh, has a kid. I would just—I would say there's so much though that you grew up with too that I argue is still really good. Like I, I love going back and being able to read things. And admittedly, there's maybe bigger gaps in the '90s X-Men stuff than there is of other X-Men storylines um, of really, really quality stuff. But there's there's still some incredible things that you know we can share with, with younger people that they're like, wow, this is really, really good. I don't know. I'm I'm mindful of of the tendency that we have to think everything in our childhood is sacrosanct and maybe i'm doing that maybe i'm looking back on my x-men childhood something that it wasn't but all i know is that now those memories of those old stories in those comics have brought me to this storyline and uh i at first i was very reticent because i'm not i'm not the the biggest hickman fan i i was at the beginning when i started reading his image stuff and some of his earlier comics but i have found that he in my opinion is a very good ideas man 
not very good at dialogue and not extremely good at getting from A to B if B is his final destination. He's more of an A, B, C, D, E, F, and the final destination is, is Z in Canada or Z in the States. Um, and it's like A all the way to the end of the alphabet. You don't even it, – it's like sometimes H will appear when you when it's – or a B. And, and then there's an S that says the S will come back. Don't worry. This is a big deal. This character is going to be around forever. And the S is gone from the alphabet. And you're like, who's X Nihilo again? Why is he? Is he an Avenger? He's every Avenger. He's in all the multiverse. I'm like, I guess he's a big deal. And then nothing, right? And and so when I even read, I'm uh, speaking of Infinity, right? There's there's early pages in House of X where we see actually the first few pages where we see Xavier dressed as the Maker, and mm. he's hatching pods or eggs, and their hands are. And I, I took a picture of this and sent it to Adam. Maybe even you, Paul, too. Yeah, uh, I want to read this. And I'm like, this is the page, and I actually have the original page downstairs uh, from Apenia of the um, is the moon, right? They're on the moon, or they're Mars? It's the moon. It was the something moon. in our yeah. in our solar system. And Ex Nihilo and Abyss are there, and they're hatching creatures. And Thor is like, what's going on? And then Abyss makes out with them or something. Like that. And you have the hands cracking through the eggs. So Hickman definitely is a. As a, as a guy who brings things back that he thinks are neat, clearly, but I don't know that he's always good at making things matter story to story. And uh, so I was like, okay, I will dip my toe, and then if there's anything that comes from here that's not written by Hickman, I will I'll read that instead. And the more I've read this, I think, I think this is stronger as a project than anything else of his that I've ever read. I mean, East of West, too, I have, like, three volumes in with it. Like, this is going to go somewhere. This is going to go somewhere. Everyone loves this East of West. And I'm like, I can't carry. But I care about this, and I don't know exactly why. I think I know pieces of why. And now I just bought everything. Now I'm buying everything. Now, like, flash forward. How long did that take me? Like, a year? And now I've bought every series, and I'm going to just buy everything. Because I'm not going to buy, like, any other <laughs> Marvel comics now. Like, I'm done with Avengers for a while. Immortal Hulk's great, so I'm going to catch up on that, and then it's like Immortal Hulk and X-Men, so that turned me around. Hmm. Well, that's great, yeah. It's interesting, you you are right about the kind of the, the A to Z kind of nature of some of his comics, because I remember when he was doing Fantastic Four, that there were some issues in there, and I'm like, I don't know if this, like, what is this? But then it, he does tie it together. Like, I do feel like he is really good at tying a lot of disparate things together, but you're right that when when you're in it, it's really hard to see it because sometimes you, you're getting. I would argue that even when he does tie it together, in my opinion, when he does tie it together, it's not always satisfying. Like what if, again? What's that series? The four volumes of the end of the Marvel universe before time, time runs out. It. Time runs out. I can't stand that. It doesn't feel like anything's gratifying. He ties things. To, I'm doing air quotes. He ties things together, but it just feels like what he's been doing for so much of that, especially time runs out is the story of the, is the monster of the month. This is the monster of the month. There's an egg bat thing that's made of light. I'm, I'm making that up. That's not real. But it could be. You don't know. It's real. Living in the middle of Manhattan and the eggs are breaking, so the AIM agents are going to go get it first, but the Avengers have to stop them. And, of course, the most important Avenger will be there, which is Starbrand, who we all know and love. And in the end, Starbrand is infected by the light bat, and what's going to happen to him, and his eyes go black. End of comic. 
never mentioned again. And then at the uh, that's not even an issue, but it could be. Um, at the end of it, they're like, "Oh, all the things that were popping out of the Earth was the um, the um, the antibodies of the Earth planetary defense system." Thank you. Now on to secret war, you know, or secret wars. So it's like I don't feel that those really are tied together. I know he'll make an attempt, but it's almost like he's doing Monster of the Month, which works perfectly fine for something like Buffy or Godzilla movies, but I just didn't love it. And and he's, he does a little bit of that in, in, how, in his X-Men line, which we're not talking about, but um, I, I like, I appreciate that at least he's tying it into some other, I, I really think he's tying a lot of it into uh, the history of X-Men because we've got the vault, which is a Morrison thing, right? And the world, the vault and the world, which is a Morrison establishing uh-huh. Morrison's run. And then later on in, uh, what is it? Uh, which X-Men book is it that continues? The, uh, the Chris Bacello art. Wait, how do you say Bacello? But, but we, we found a pronunciation guide, and I still can't say Bacello. Um, who is that? Is that Carrie? Is that Carrie and Bacello who did yes. X-Men for a while? Is that who I'm thinking of? That's who you're thinking of, I believe. They do, they do a whole thing with Omega, with uh, Karima, mm-hmm. yeah, Mega Sentinel, and right and the world, I think. I, I can't remember all of it, but that part of that is correct. But so I, I can, and you can see some of the designs too in that X Men line. Anyway, uh, that are hinting at Chris Pacello's art. So I'm like, okay, if you're going to do Monster of the Month, at least he's tethering it into X Men continuity, and I got to give him props for that. I don't know. That's, I, I feel like it's. I just feel like it's more rooted. If you can say that for anything about X Men continuity, which is all over the place. Yeah. I, I do like that you said rooted because it feels very uh, like a pun considering cool. Krakoa. Very good. Unintentional pun. <laughs> Paul, what was your kind of feeling coming in, not with the book itself and where X-Men had been, but just your prior experiences with Hickman, given Nate's experiences? Oh, geez. Um, that's a very good question. Like I have obviously read a lot of his stuff outside of Marvel. Um, I'd never read any Fantastic Four. So I have no context for that. None of it. Uh, none of it. Oh my god. Yeah, I know that, and like Shield, are supposed to be good, but I, I, I always meant to go back to it, but I never did. Um, so really, my my main exposure was the whole Avengers run for sure. Um, which is funny because like again, I, I don't remember it super vividly, but I don't remember not. I don't remember hating Time Runs. I, I, I thought Time Runs Out was. Was pretty fun, but maybe because I like it's a fever dream, Paul. It's terrible. Sorry, continue. No, fair enough. Maybe because I like Monster of the Month, maybe Power Ranger guys, the Monster of the Week every time. I don't know. Maybe it's in my wheelhouse. Um, but uh, anyways, I, I do remember like you know everything kind of coming full circle for him with, with Secret Wars, and that being almost the last solid top to bottom Marvel event we've had in forever. Um, you know, so. I guess no, he's he's pretty heavy, right? Like he's got really big ideas. He's got some complicated concepts. Um, you know, you look at the run; it started off uh, in a unique way. Like he gives you something familiar with, like you know, the the MCU Avengers on the on a, on a kind of first mission, and immediately they fail and they kind of change it all up right off the hop. Um, but at least it gave you a sense of you know, it, it, when it started, it felt like it made sense where it started from. Like, here's these recognizable characters, here they go, they have a mission, it doesn't work out, and, and then things need to change because of it. Whereas this is like, boom, 
here's this whole wacky new, you know, uh, reality almost. And, you know, everything's the same, but everything's completely different at the same time. Mm. So I, it's interesting. My, uh, my experience with Hickman was, I guess, more similar to Nate's. I've read a lot more of his, his image stuff as well. I did read all the Fantastic Four stuff. I think, I, I mean, Marvel work, I probably like S.H.I.E.L.D. the most. Um, but his Fantastic Four was, again, a brilliant run that felt like it kind of lost was its steam at some point early on. But then I realized it was all in service to this bigger story, which is, again, Nate's point from before that, you know, you feel like, oh, we're just kind of doing these one offs. But then it, it did come together. And I feel like his kind of big ending of his Fantastic Four run kind of happened like 10 issues before he left the book so like it every everything ended it felt like this amazing ending but then he was still there for a little while and it just kind of felt like it was still going but like he wasn't like he like he hadn't quite he hadn't decided to leave but the the epic story was over and it felt like it was this weird feeling of kind of anticlimax climax because he because it was really over and now we, we still had a little bit more and i don't know if he really knew what he wanted to do with it um and then with his avengers and new avengers uh, i always felt his new avengers was much better um it was really just an illuminati book and i really liked oh. everything about the illuminati and so all that stuff so the time runs out thing is interesting to me because i feel like you're right the avengers stuff i was not as interested in but everything about what was going on with the new avengers and the incursions i was totally there for and i was i felt that way throughout all of Hickman's Avengers is that I was never really that big a fan of, you're right, the ex Nilo stuff and was kind of, you know, kind of weird bouncing around. But the new Avengers, I was like, with rapt attention, every issue could not wait to see what happened next. It was an interesting juxtaposition of those two comics because he was, it was the same guy writing it, but you wouldn't feel like it. Um, one felt so serious and epic and exciting. And the other one was like, what are we doing? Um, there, Adam, there's two Hyperions. <laughs> See, it's so promising, right? Like, I, I, what is this mystery? Um, I, I really wanted to like it, and I would say at least the first volume of Avengers World, let's call it that, even though it's called Avengers Proper, I suppose, um, I really enjoyed. But, yeah. So, we're half an hour in. Let's talk about Hawksbox. <laughs> right on point for us. Yeah, that's about right. So, I mean... Um, I, again, I don't want to go issue by issue. Again, I like examining larger themes, etc. But I always did really like the kind of tranquil beginning of having, you know, seeing because you don't really know what you're seeing when the first few pages, especially when you're first reading the comic um, about you know them planting you know the Krakoan gates and the and and the, the habitats, etc. It's such a nice kind of quiet start to what becomes kind of as at times a quite busy uh, series of stories. But it's nice that he starts it kind of very nice and and, and simple. Well, because he's literally planting the seeds. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's a heavy-handed metaphor, right? <laughs> right. Like we're here, we're starting we're starting fresh, and here's where we're going to start, and here's how this whole thing's kind of going to grow. So it's kind of kind of fitting to kind of start it in a very simple way. Like he very slowly, like this whole thing is very episodic, right? And everything just kind of come together in a certain way. It's hard to keep track sometimes because the time jumps can be pretty extreme. Mm-hmm. Like I was, you know. I was all in on the, the year one and year ten stuff. I, everything there made sense. When you look into the future, that stuff broke my brain. So I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around a lot of the year one hundred, year one thousand stuff. That's, that's the yeah, especially the year one thousand stuff. I don't think that you're alone there at all, Paul. Especially with the year one thousand stuff. Uh, that's where he gets very abstract, more and more abstract, more and more just kind of philosophical. There's not a real sense of plot progression, and it doesn't really materialize until the very end. 
and and in between he's like i've got to reconcile the technarchy and the phalanx those are two terms that seem to be conflated a lot and with what's a technarchy what's a phalanx and you got the madrera you know uh, re- redesign of the phalanx they called them phalanx they and uncanny axemen the mm-hmm. joseph era yeah Right, and so you've got Lebdell just going, okay, do whatever you want, Joe. And he's like, well, what if they were black and they had, like, long <laughs> limbs and stuff? And he's like, okay. So I guess Hickman – I do I really feel like Hickman knows his history because he's like, apparently been sitting on this. And he's like, no, I need a unified theory. So somewhere in the middle of the thousand-year storyline, he's like, here's what the technarchy means and here's what – and it's a lot of gobbledygook that I don't think anybody needs. And, yeah. and I don't imagine – even with the uh, – it's called Ankara, right? The the other island. Mm-hmm. Uh, even with this Ankara stuff, I don't think he's going anywhere near the technarchy thing. So I would say to anybody, the, the thousand-year stuff, you can kind of just scan it until maybe the end because the stuff that's really the meat really – right? Isn't it year one and year and maybe to an extent Ten. year 100? Yeah. Well, you, no, year one thing because the, the other two years showcase two ends of her life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Once you get around for a circle to them, so those lives so everything end. except a thousand. Yeah, um, but I guess you know the the, the big kind. Of, the, the one thing I really loved um, was the discovery that Moira is a mutant and she has this reincarnation power, this big bombshell. Here's this character we've known forever. She's had you know say what you will about her history and what she's been through. I might again I can't remember where she was at prior to reading this book. Was she alive? Was she dead? What was going on with she her? She was dead. But dead. Okay. Yeah. She'd been dead since but, before Morrison came on, so this is almost 20 years. You'd be, and you'd be forgiven for forgetting that, right? Exactly, yeah. because of the duration, and no one saw fit. Um, she she dies of the virus, of the, the yeah. she helps, organic virus. Yeah, she helps figure it out just as she's dying, and Xavier is oh. like in her mind getting the cure out of her mind so they can synthesize it so that like an issue later, Colossus can kill himself to, to spread the cure. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's not the technogenovirus. That's that's a different virus. It's it's what was the virus called? Legacy virus. Legacy virus, that's it. Yeah. Remember mut- mutant yeah. AIDS? <laughs> like that's yeah, that's AIDS. that what's what it was, right? So it's uh see sometimes the metaphor is very gentle and refined, and sometimes the metaphor smacks you over the head with it, and yeah, I, I would agree that the mutant AIDS thing was maybe too much. I don't know. That's I, when she died, yeah. I, I do feel like that in the nineties it gave it gave mutancy a, a, a new threat that wasn't just the traditional evil mutants and humanity, and now it was something else. It was this biological component that was only striking them, and it, and it kind of it gave it an additional reason for humans maybe to fear and, and mistrust mutants. Like I, I do, I get what you're saying, but it was it did add a sense of uh, tension um, that was you know an, an additional tension that made sense for the period, especially. I suppose I just feel like again it was too heavy-handed because at the time and this is coming out of the early 90s when you know the AIDS epidemic hit the gay community so hard and the one of the things that was so damaging besides the obvious horrible loss of human life was the way that it made people in straight communities terrified of quote unquote the gay threat right so it was maybe a little too soon it's yeah. almost like if there were civil rights movement, you know, fights, attacks, or riots in the '60s, and there was an X Men comic about the ex- almost the exact same thing at the same time. It might feel like, ouch, you know, so, you know, so, too soon. I don't, I don't know exactly why it left that distasteful feeling for me. But a- anyway, I, I don't want to go too far afield that in terms of the Mora reference. But 
one of the things that I really like, and I completely agree with Paul, and I hope we spend a little bit of time talking about that issue, but even earlier than that, one of the things that, getting back to my earlier rants, um, the, the Night of the Sentinels, that, I don't, the Sentinels are an enemy of the X-Men that drew me in immediately. Yeah. And Morrison, I think, does a great job with them, with the Wild Sentinels. I think that kind of caught my imagination as well in a different way. But this idea that the government is creating these machines to hunt and, and track you down in your neighborhood. They come for Jubilee in her house. Mm. Um, was was terrifying. And, and, the, and in the mall. And they, they, again, never fully accurately or effectively utilized in the Fox films. Um, but here we have a mother mole that's being built orbiting the sun. I don't know what page this is, but it's early on. Like, that's... How long has it been since we've had, like, oh my gosh, Sentinels, right? Like... We've had a Sentinel protecting the Jean Grey school for a time, mm-hmm. which was a kind of a neat take on things. And some Sentinel attacks a little bit, but this idea that they could be making an army of horrendous killing machines and eventually we learn Nimrods at the sun. And now you've got to do a mission to stop the Sentinels. Like that's – what is that? It, it, how many episodes into X-Men animated series is that where they go to destroy – I think it's at the end of season one where they go to kill the Master Mold, right? That's right. And before that, though, they do another run or raid on the Sentinel Factory. I think it's like five episodes in or something like that to the animated series. Either way, those are seminal moments for me to see them. This is for you, Morph. Um, you know, Magneto's line, the braver, always the first to die. Um, the, the, it, and then we get to have a, a suicide mission just like that in this. I mean, I that's the 90s tingles, right? Like that's, that's hitting me in my kind of my nostalgic youth. And I think it's... A, it, it's very effectively done. So there's at least two incredible storylines. There's more. I think there's at least four or five really, really compelling storylines. Yeah, that, that raid on the uh, Orcs facility it was uh, amazing. And so it's so masterfully put together. And it, and it blows you away because, again, the episodic nature of these issues, and I read them as they were being released, and I'm reading this issue, and everyone dies. Everyone dies. And it's like, holy crap. And now I'm thinking, and this is before they really make Resurrection known as the thing, right? And I remember the very first issue when you see the people coming out of the pods, you go, oh, is that cut in gene? Like, it looks like it's cut in gene to me, right? Like, what's going on with any red, right? <laughs> sure. Red, but yeah. my guess was cut. Oh, it's Siren? Maybe? No, it's, it's cut in gene. Um, so when all these characters die, it's like, holy crap, did he just kill, like, all these key X-Men characters? Where's he going with this? What's happening? You know? And it's, it's interesting that you know, the resurrection becomes this thing because we all kind of tease that comic book deaths don't matter, right? So why not just get that out of the way of saying, well, we got this cool resurrection thing that can just... <laughs> but does it then, you know, remove the fact that no one can die? So what are the stakes in a certain way too? It's kind of an interesting uh, counterpoint to it. But um, either way, like, I remember reading the issue and it says multiple times, you know... Um, the the image of the sentinel crashing through the escape pod onto gene is haunting like that art is so you know it blew me away to see that it was so scary i was i was i was frightened like gene is i've never had a piece of art do that to me i have to say full crea- is that silva who did that issue i'm not sure I, was at, I can't remember which one of the two did that particular issue pepe laraz can we give props to pepe laraz here like sure. he he some of the things that's so strong I think about a lot of the Dawn of X books going forward is that most of them have actually fantastic artists Um, and when they don't (laughs) I'm not going to name names I feel like oh 
they carry so much of that burden. And Laraz in this is just incredible. I can agree with that too, Paul. The the feelings I had reading that issue or issues, um, it does create stakes. And I think there's a lot of great philosophy they get into, especially later on, about am I really me anymore? Uh, what does it mean to clone clones? Um, what if it doesn't work, which they bring up at X-Force later on? Like, what if there's a chance there's a blip? Like, I don't think it eliminates the stakes entirely at all because there's always a chance it won't work for you. Mm-hmm. What if it doesn't work for me this time? So I like that that's still this frailty. It's an organic system that you need to get together. Uh, my, my, my perspective on this was different because I was reading this when I was fully... I, I fully knew about the resurrection. I, I mean, you know, the, the X-Men set, for goodness sake, uh, has come out uh, for, in Heroclix recently, and it's, it's, it's steeped in the mechanics of the game. So I'm reading this, really, knowing all of that, and my heart is still pounding in those issues. And I'm just, like, getting super emotional because they, they do such a great job of showing their humanity, even though they're not humans, technically. Well, yeah, because um, you have Cyclops, the bravest man I ever met. When Wolverine goes out and gets teleported by Nightcrawler, right? or or Logan basically praying with Kurt <laughs> before <laughs> before he knows that he might never come back, or and Mystique that button getting hit and Mystique getting shot out of space the airlock, yeah. Just um, the, the, I guess maybe that it's it's the closest is when I was whatever eleven, and I thought this new cartoon that I'm watching. That I just, I, I guess they're dead. Like, I guess they die here. <laughs> when Magneto says the braver, like, I've never heard a cartoon at that age in my life say even the word die. Like, it's censored. You're, you know, you're destroyed. You disappeared. Um, kill and die come up very rarely, even in 80s cartoons. the slaughter of Transformers the movie, I, there was a lot of death that happened in that movie. <laughs> I, I did not miss that. That traumatized me. Yeah, um, right. But that, tra- but and then immediately afterwards, GI Joe the movie's like we're going to take away the trauma, right? So I'm only really hit once with that. That it's still traumatizing movie, um, but largely no. And then I'm reading, I'm watching this, and it, and it's also very realistically drawn. I would argue the X Men by comparison, the animated series. So when he says the brave are only the first to die, and I'm like, Morph's already dead. Like anyone can go. That sense of the stakes for Hickman and Laraz to replicate that in a context of everyone can come back was more remarkable. I'm still kind of thinking about how art did that to me because I have two things that connect really well to this story and I don't know where they come from entirely. One is I love tropical spaces like images of Hawaii saved by the bell goes to Hawaii. I'm like, I'm down for that. Uh, Star tropics on the NES. I'm like, I love that box. I don't know what it is for someone who's never been in a tropical space except for, I suppose Australia. But um, I, I, I'm drawn to that. And uh, the second thing I would say is a, a great fear of the deep sea ocean or outer space, like that claustrophobia and the nothingness and the idea that I could die. The only thing keeping me alive is this small suit. So Mystique going out an airlock, it's terrifying to me. Um, Kurt and, and Wolverine teleporting into the vacuum of space and you, and you see Kurt. He immediately disintegrates. His body vaporizes. And, like, and, he, and a claustrophobia on the shuttle, like Paul talked about. And there's these space Nazis, these, these human supremacists who are trying around every corner to use their technology to kill you and everyone that you love. So, like, it's just like a lot of stuff. And um, 
I, I need I have to congratulate the the creators. I think it's I, I again I, I think I mentioned this to Paul or Adam off off air that I agree that someone I don't know who said this, but Hickman seems like every four to five issues he'll write something that is like transcendent. And then there's like four or five issues of like, okay, well, I don't know if I needed this or that was a pretty good one or I mean I give that a B. And then every four or five issues there's the more Taggart issue, which changes everything and yet feels completely natural. Like, yeah, of course. She's a human who has been around the X-Men so much and is just so interconnected with them and also keeps coming back and dying a lot. What what is that about? Um and then uh, there's the attack on the Orcus or Orchis station. Um, I, those are the two ones that stand out to me the most, maybe in this in this series. Uh, I don't know. What about you, Adam? I, it's interesting. I, I think that as you, as you guys have said that that kind of that raid on the station is kind of Hickman doing a magic trick where he knows before we know, at least like especially for Paul and I reading it uh, episodically as it was coming out, that he knew exactly that like you know resurrection was a thing like none of this was really going to matter but he played it so straight and so and again Laraz kicked ass on the art that you just you felt every moment of it like there was I, I felt like Laraz must have spent extra time on it somehow I don't know how with the release schedule but I mean it just felt like like the you know how Jonathan uh, sorry uh, John Romita Jr. his artwork is either really really good if he's had like a year to work on it, the first issue <laughs> and every issue after that is is just kind of muck well, this Much felt easier, like yeah. it must have taken like Laura's forever because everything looks so perfect and it was so action oriented, so exciting every moment. But again, it was just this magic trick because, you know, Hickman knew how to reverse it right away. But we're left wondering, how the hell does he do that? Or like what what could come next? Rereading it is interesting because, you know, some of those elements that you mentioned that are so, so on point and so good, like, you know, Cyclops' comment about the, you know, the greatest person he's ever met or the, the praying. Oh. Does some of that feel a little disingenuous? No, if they if those characters know that they're going to come back, like, but they don't know, don't they know? He says, did it work? He says he says afterwards, like, did it work? And he's like, it worked. Like, they don't really know. Is it the first and, time? Or was that that it worked? Did the mission succeed? Or yeah, did we resurrect? Okay. Well, I guess I suppose they don't have to ask if it worked for the resurrection because they're literally alive, but. I, what I would amend then, I would say, yeah, I think he's asking about the mission. What I would, what I would add to that though is, there is a loss. There is a loss because he Cerebro can't pick up their brain waves. Mm. That they say this, he couldn't, he couldn't grab their memories. I can't bring you. So that journey you had, the praying, the, <coughs> the sweet comments, uh, the, the noble comments about Cyclops, the sacrifices they made for each other, everything that they did, the only ones who have it is the Orcus personnel who are still alive who remember any of it and us, the reader. Those are the only people who have any knowledge of this loss. And so if you found that, and this comes up in X-Force later with Domino, but if you found that you could come back to life but you wouldn't be all of you, there'd be pieces of you missing, isn't that worth mourning over? Isn't that worth grieving over that there's something... I mean, you know, Rucker Howard at the end of Blade Runner, he talks about one of the things that will be... When I die, the thing that will be lost is the things that I've seen that I've done, and no one will ever see or do those things in the same way or experience them. And he's, and he's expressing this, this this bittersweet almost, like my, my pain will end perhaps, but with me goes all this glorious stuff or all this wonderful stuff. So yeah, I think, I think there's a bittersweetness to the resurrection that 
we've got you back, but we've got a piece of you back. Mm. And the part of you, the Cyclops, the, the part of you and Kurt, Logan, Logan and Kurt that prayed together, and he's, you know, I, I call it a prey. I don't know that it's necessarily that, but they, they have this reflective moment, this philosophical moment, and Logan asks if, like, I think he asks, it, can a guy like me end up in the, in the good place? Like, will I end up in heaven? Like, that's, <laughs> again, a, 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 an even better scene than in the X-Men animated series episode with Nightcrawler, which mm. is a wonderful episode, actually. Where they're talking, you know, Wolverine's like, I don't have a religion. I don't believe in any of that stuff. And Nightcrawler fights the whole episode to try to kindle a spark in this in this old man. Um, so, so that moment with them together, these these are precious moments. I'd say they're meaningful, but they're lost. So, I think there are still stakes. I think this this I think uh, again this is uh, after Hawksbox, but I believe it is later referenced in X Force. Um, but it's interesting to think that you know each time Wolverine is resurrected, they got to put the adamantium back. Yeah, yeah. Like that's kind of messed they up. Whole, they've they've invested in a reservoir as much adamantium as they can get. It's going to be expensive, right? Some of the adamantium is now in the sun, right? It's gone. So it's already a very hard to get material, right? It's it's human made, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I it think is, so. Right? I'm pretty sure it is. But either way, it's very expensive to make. So I, I like that that detail is there too. How do you feel about the idea of you know, in order to kind of create an economy or for a Krakoic to really exist on the world stage, of them having drugs and then basically being a pharmaceutical company and being able to use drugs to exert influence? How do you feel about that element of the Krakoan culture in order to exist on the wider stage? Who do you want to take that first? Uh, I, I would imagine Nate would have something to say faster. Um, Paul can well, I mean, it's interesting when you, when you say the word drugs, like I, part of me, the way I was raised is like drug is a bad word, mm. but this is not what this is. This is right. This is, this is akin as I would argue, uh, to indigenous medicines. People have cultivated for, you know, the, our, the history of our humanity. Every indigenous nation has, uh, or group has located medicines that will do things like extend our lives and heal us from things that that impair us. So this is just a mutant island through through the atomic age that was irradiated that has um, come to life and has granted through its mutative abilities superior or utopian versions of these drugs. But I mean, how different is this from any drug that has also? I mean. 20th century has seen the extension of our lives by great magnitude. Almost 100 years ago, the life expectancy was almost half it was, right? Mm. Like in some parts, especially in some parts of the world, but even parts of the West. So, yeah, the idea that we have drugs that can extend the human life and can cure cancer and um, what's the last one do? One is like a placebo. One is the time. Oh, antibiotics, like uh, uh, antibiotics that won't uh, mutate or or form resistance Mm. bacterium. So I think that it, it, it's a, both a, a, a Krakoan connection, and I, maybe we can talk more about Krakoa and bringing that back into the limelight and how important that is. Krakoa is its own character. And so I, there's a whole thing, especially in X-Force, but like about Loronics or about Loronic engineering and the technology of flowers and, uh, and plants. And Forge now is, is kind of uh, – he's still the maker, but he works heavily with plant technology – 
I, I like that this is a distinguishing thing for them. I like that. Yeah, well, you X-Men, have Xavier drop off Cipher, right, to speak mm. to the island and create the language, right? That was the yeah, big so, deep thing, and not language that's everywhere. Was, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. That, that, that it, there, there are culture now. Cultures have languages. They have histories. They have songs. They have dancing. They have music. They have um, technology. They have knowledge usually of of their past ancestors so the x-men are interesting because their ancestors are them they're they're with them we can bring back everybody except for destiny because magneto and xavier are rascals we'll find out later um we can bring back almost everybody and so we have connections to our roots again there's that root word but also there's everything there's uh, you know at one point later on in x-men which we'll get to hopefully another episode i I don't know if i like the scene the way it's it's answered but one of the um the UN, no, it's not UN. It's a, um, it's a, uh, what's the 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 gathering of all the millionaires? Do, oh yeah, uh, I, I can't remember. I know what you mean. Switzerland. Anyway, the World Summit, right? Um, they ask it, Magneto, like, where's the where's the closest mutants author that you know? And Magneto says, oh, I don't know of any mutant authors, but they'll, you know, there are none, but there'll be more. I would hope that there actually are mutant authors that just not recognized. Like there'll be mutant books, there'll be mutant philosophy, there'll be mutant mathematics. There's already lots of things like language, which is so important. So I see all of this as kind of an attempt to really find the X-Men in a very real place, situate them in a space where they haven't really been. They've kind of been floundering in, in, in a school and across the globe and sometimes in Asteroid M. And now they're like, no, we, we put down a country, we have a space, we have a culture – and I feel like the drugs are just a natural extension of Krakoa in, in that sense of the, the floral technology, but also what could be worth more to humans than life? Like it's, it's a, they, don't have to, they don't have to mass produce merchandise. They don't have to make watches. They don't have to have mm. manufacturing. They don't have to have a, a service industry. They, they export the life of Krakoa. They export mutantness. So if you – it's interesting because if you are what you eat – and everybody seems to be consuming mutant drugs. There's almost like a co- like a reverse colonization, right? Like mm. there's a whole thing. Like there's a whole post-colonial reading of this of these texts that I also love, love too. That have been colonized the way that you know many indigenous communities have been colonized in real history, and now there's a reversal of that. Like Manu keeps talking about it. What if you eat, you consume? Us? We're going to be everywhere. We're going to destroy you financially. Is one aspect. But literally, the the humans are now depending on putting in their bodies. It's a, they're mutant plants. They're eating Krakoa. I mean, if, in a crude way. So I think there's layers there that are pretty exciting. How long before? I mean, it's not long at all. There's religious groups that are worshiping mutants, mm. and there's and they allude to this. There are religious groups that are saying you don't take any of the drugs. And I'm, I hope we'll get more more of that as we go through the storyline, but. There's got to be religious people who are like, no, you don't take mutant plants inside your body. That's not what you do. That's not what God would want you to do. And there's it's rife with all these interesting things. What if you have someone who's dying in your family of cancer and they could just take the drug, but their faith forbids them from doing it? Like there's lots of really cool stuff there that I don't think would exist if they just made really good stereos and the, like that the world wouldn't accept them as a nation. So I think that that Pigman and team picked kind of the perfect thing to export it's kind of perfect mm. in a way yeah well then there's the flip side of you know 
the people who don't believe in like anti-vaxxers look at our current state today and how you know the coronavirus and how there's the vaccines coming and some people refuse to take it because it's this weird it's been rushed it's been this it's been that all the, all the crap you hear um and then or is it a way of you know have various governments refuse to see Kakro as a sovereign nation because well is this you wanting to do your own thing and be nice to the world or is this you blackmailing us to leave you alone hmm. you know in, in a way because obviously we've seen time after time utopia genosha all these different nations or, or, or safe havens the music keep making for themselves sentinels wipe it out done like it's this constant cycle right and you see it throw moira's lives how this is a constant cycle so this is kind of the plan to break it um so you know they, they do make themselves as safe as possible with uh you know giving back to the world saying look we just want to do our thing on our little island you know we'll still be heroes and we'll still do this and that but we just don't want you know stop trying to kill us here here you know so it's, it's interesting kind of seeing how that uh, develops on from the multiple points of view davos davos is the word i couldn't remember no uh, but i want to add on to paul's point too like i one of the things that compels me as a poli sci guy is is the real world kind of context is like how would actors in internationally operate given this and i like that russia i i think it's not impossible that the russian government could act this way that they would seize all the gates and they would be like okay we're, we're not letting another nation leverage this over us and so we learn later in wolverine right that there's segments of kind of the secret actors trying to obtain those drugs a different way and maybe grow them themselves and maybe even sell them to other people and then getting a hold of the nullifier armor uh, essentially based off of forges mm. uh, depowering ray like and and that we learned that the colossus goes to try to bring back refugees from russia and 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 that becomes a dangerous mission so the the I love the domino effects. I love that, that things feel real, that there's cults popping up, that there's a reason why gates don't work in some spaces, um, you know, that we have to create seafaring missions to rescue them. I, I think that they, it must have been a great time, a fun time being in that X room, whatever you want to call it, the 10 room, sitting with all the writers and exploring all the different ideas they could pursue. It must have, that, that whiteboard must have been amazing. It is interesting that again, Krakoa is such a. I mean, is the foundation upon which this all works. And you know, Krakoa obviously was kind of back back to the forefront by Brubaker when he was doing Deadly Genesis, and then used a lot by Jason Aaron when he was doing Wolverine and the X Men. And then we have kind of this next extension, which is very different. Um, but how do you guys feel about the gates? I mean, I think they're just a cool visual. They've been used to a lot of cool effects, especially after this particular series, as we've seen how they've been manipulated in different ways. How do you guys feel about the Krakoan gates and how that's kind of impacted the Marvel Universe? It's an interesting piece of technology um, that they've kind of just created these teleportation gates. Um, it's also fascinating how, you know, they like no no man can use them, which is fine. I have they established why no like the Russians don't just torch and destroy the gate. That's on their side of it. Is that everyone established? No, I, I I my guess would be because they want to use them someday. They want to use them maybe as a way. Me, I'm in Excalibur in one of the alternate realities that Jamie makes. Sorry for jumping ahead like a year. Um. 
it's possible to burn them. But then, you know, there's little florets or little spores that kind of come off of it. So the suggestion is that maybe they could regrow. But yeah, they, they can be burned. It also could be viewed as an act of war. I mean, if you're, I mean, like, it's, I know it's on their soil, but I mean, you're attacking something that's connected to this other country. Maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you don't want to, you know, propagate what, you know, what they want you to do, but you don't necessarily want to, you know, destroy something. And as Nate said, if they, if you can, you know, take it apart or try and dissect anything about it, it, it could help uh-huh. you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's also a good point, too. Like, I love that other element of diplomatic immunity, which, can maybe bring us back a little bit more to the story at hand because Sabretooth is supposed to have um, a- exceptions made for him. He-, he runs a mission early on in the storyline and he's a known serial killer and he shouldn't be, you know, he has he has to answer all, the, all these different courts that want to bring him in to receive for his crimes and they're like, no, he gets amnesty. All mutants get amnesty. You signed it. You signed the agreement. You signed the recognition of sovereignty. So... All mutants gain amnesty, and then they have a conflict. Like, I like that Sabretooth is the one chosen. Of all the people they could have chosen, he's the um, sinister will kind of go, yeah, I I can kind of keep things on the down low. Apocalypse. Apocalypse is interesting because, yeah, he in, in alternate storylines, he commits genocide. In our storyline, and in, in 616 universe proper, what is he actually done in, in like ancient egypt he led armies okay nobody knows a lot about that history there's a lot of gaps anyway um as far as the world knows he's just another bad mutant but can anyone like i'm asking you to seriously like is there any storyline that like mutants at large would know of apocalypse actually killing lots of people i feel like maybe not so there's a reason why we know he's really bad, but the world's like, I don't like him, and I don't think he does good things. I think he, he held some people for hostage at one point, but Sabretooth is the one that's really a big problem, and so everyone's focusing on that. He actually goes to court at one point, and Emma Frost, who, I gotta say, I haven't liked her this much since Morrison's run. He, she has been so phenomenally written. Yeah, Hickman and then Dugan uh, struts into a, a court, and he's, she's like, he's with me, you're not touching him. And a soldier pulls a gun on her, and she's just like, you're not going to use that, and if you think you are, it's going to be the last thing that you do. Kind of like, like um, So there's a reason to fear Sabretooth. They bring him in, and, and the only thing they can do is exile him. Everybody else kind of has what they want, right? Sinister gets to keep being his gross self on the down low, and now he has all these, you know, he's already made an agreement with Magneto and Xavier. Apocalypse has everything he wanted, too. He wants the world to be controlled by survival of the fittest, and now he has an island. And the way he sees it, he's like, this is just going to keep going forward. There's no reason for Apocalypse to hurt his own kind. So I, I love even this idea of, of mutants being able to walk across those gates and saying, I have diplomatic immunity. I love the idea of mutants cutting home to Krakoa, who, how are we going to figure out a place for Omega Red? How do you figure out a place for the Gorgon? who they end up making a, bo- a, a supreme bodyguard. He's like, yeah, by, by based on my honor, I think I'm around good warriors. Like, it, It's a whole new thing where the writers get to kind of pick a new status quo and figure out how it can work. And the only one who doesn't work for, I, I think, is Sabretooth. I think they made the right call. I can't think of any really... Maybe Adam X. Maybe he's the other one that doesn't fit. But it's okay. He's in Mojo <laughs> World anyway, so... You know, when, when you think about it, that the X Men are interesting because they're all mutants. Their 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 villains are all mutants too. So the, all they have is different philosophies on how they should interact with 
with humans. That's the most of the for most of the time. It's the only thing that differentiates them. So now, once their philosophies kind of connect, I guess it makes sense that for a time they can be at peace and it and it works. So I don't. I'm bought into. I bought into it. Does it's it- fascinating you bring the villains up because that brings us to the Quiet Council and the obscene amount of evil that, that is on that council um you know from mystique to sinister to apocalypse and exodus is on there like a lot of people you would deem as villains run this council and then they and they build those three laws right like respect Kakroa, kill no humans and make lots of babies right so it's fascinating how you know they they, they built that world and and, and those people you know, can all agree on, okay, these are, well, I, I think the Kill No Human might be a dicey one for some of the, the villains, but everything else kind of kind of makes sense, right? But uh, you got to believe, like, we know Mystique, you know, there there's more to her than meets the eye because the Destiny angle, right? That little nugget's going to probably sit and ferment. That seed's been planted and it's going to grow. It's a long, long game, I think. Um, and I think that happens in the X-Men issue down the road, doesn't it? I think I might have jumped the gun for that comment. But. Okay, yeah. I mean, they, they talk about it, but you're right. It's still, it's still, you know, I would say the, the ultimate culmination is still at, you know, why. So don't worry. It's, it's, it's way, way away. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was very surprised to see, like, yeah, you can, like, we see it all the time with, with villains becoming heroes or anti-heroes or, or joining forces. But this is on a, the biggest scale. It's like taking every, you know, uh, Avenger villain, like Doc Doom and Kang and Elkshawn, all just now hanging out the mansion together at a big table having breakfast on a, in a Bendis book. It's like you've never seen something like that before, having everyone kind of come together, which is a, a fascinating kind of angle to take it. Kind of, I don't know if we're going to see more, you know, if if Wolverine and Omega are step in a bar, they still gonna you know rumble with each other, and like everything's been forgotten now because they're all happy mutants on the on the island. Probably not. No, no. right. No. In Wolverine, they're addressing that. Yeah, and X Force. Yeah, I mean, Nate brings up um, a good point that the idea is that you know if if, if the vil- the so called villainous people on the council, if everyone's kind of achieved their goal, which was they want a mutant supremacy and they want a power and they want money, that's generally speaking where a lot of them wanted to go. If they have all that. What you know? What 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 do they have left to be villainous about? You know, now they have they sit on a council, they exert power over you know the, the most powerful nation on earth because of all these mutants. Haven't they all achieved you know their their wildest dreams already? And so, what's left for them to really be villainous? Whereas Nate brought up a great point about Sabretooth that Sabretooth doesn't care about any of that stuff. He cared about the hunt. He cares about he just likes killing people. Like that's he has he he operated on a completely different level, which is why he couldn't exist with what Krakoa is. But whereas all these other villains, when you see them there. You can kind of it makes sense because again they've achieved it. You know, Apocalypse wanted the fittest and he wanted all the mutants to be together. Magneto wanted the same thing. They may have approached it somewhat differently, but they wanted the same ultimate goal. Mystique's the only one who has kind of a personal thing that kind of runs counter that she's running towards. But even then, she like she wants her wife. Yeah, she wants her wife. But the grander things that she may have cared about, she's okay with. You know, again, that's why everyone's kind of happy with. It's interesting to hear Nate kind of. Suss it out the idea that you know do these vill- are the are the villains still villains if they already have their goal achieved now they're just people who did villainous things but now maybe they don't have to do those villainous things because the goal's already there they've already done it they already have well, this is what I like this is what I like about the X Men and I know that um, in Whedon's run he's like we're going to be superheroes but I don't think I've ever really liked. I remember the first time I saw an X-Man kill somebody 
Um, maybe it was the Mutant Massacre where Colossus snaps and breaks his neck. And I was like, and in my head, I'm like, Richards would never do this. Captain America would never do this. You know, uh, Scarlet Witch would never do this. But like, the X-Men, that's that's not what they are. And well, I know Scarlet Witch would definitely do that. Well, our, our version, yes, but not in 1990, whatever. Not in 1980, blank, whenever the White Master came out. But yeah, our, ours would wipe away an entire species. Of um, but but uh, they don't have that same code. They their own code. They're, they're just like human beings would. It's messy. Which is like, as Paul mentioned, the, the Kill No Man group. Mutants that would be happy to do that, more than happy. Just go, okay. Now that we're supreme, recognized that way, why can't we do what anybody else does? For Jean, what, I, what I didn't understand about Jean for so long is what her character is. I didn't know enough about her because I think she was a blank slate in the nineties. But the more I've learned about her, the more I've learned that she's just like a girl who always thinks she's right and has the, enough power to push that on everybody else. So to see her in X-Force, I'm like, that's not what Jean would do. And then I'm reading and I'm like, why not? X-Force is a means for her to use her power to, to, to make things happen. I, I don't know. I, I like that there's that moral ambiguity. I like that everyone kind of can still have their own versions of their own agenda, but they're united by a larger common cause. I like that they can have an X-Force and not be wringing their hands about the saving the universe like when when saving the world comes intersects with human mutant survival and to, and sometimes human survival they'll, they'll, they'll fight but they're not the avengers and i like that this is really delineating them it's not the whedon era where it's like no we're just like the avengers we just happen to be mutants and i feel like so many people i've talked to who are outside of the comic book world just watch the fox movies they're like well i mean i like the x-men movies because they're so different from the avengers movies and i go how and they go you know and we're black. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but what ultimately is the difference? There's there's not a whole, whole bunch of differences. And that's one of the things I was bringing up before. I want them to be very different. They should feel very different. They should feel like a culture. The X-Men should feel like a family. And they they don't have the same necessarily the codes, ethical codes, maybe that some of the, the Avengers have. Which brings me to uh, one of the things that like, Paul was talking or Adam was talking about, about... Uh, the ethics, right, about right and wrong, um, everyone on that council has done horrible things. Like, Nightcrawler's the exception. Yeah. And Storm. Gene has killed solar systems. Um, Emma was horrible before she joined the X-Men, but she's done a bunch of horrible things in her, her lifetime. Kitty, I guess, didn't. Xavier has mind-controlled lots of people he ended up, an uh, X-Men team died, and he buried that in a, in a and there was a meteor where Vulcan was sapping the energy off of Darwin for like 10 years or whatever, and kept that on the down low. And Gene also has, with the Xavier, it, it said multiple times that they just change people's minds all the time. Like when they changed Kitty Pride's parents' mind, don't go with Emma Frost to her school, you are going to the Xavier. Like they just change people's minds. That's horribly unethical. I'm not saying they're all in the same parody of bad things that they've done, but it, I guess Kurt and Storm are the only people that have any kind of moral <laughs> high ground. Everyone is pretty is pretty pretty bad. So 
it's interesting that this is now the oligarchy of Krakoa. That this is the this is the they're not elected. No, it's not a democracy. It's not a monarchy either. It's just an oligarchy, a small group of people who control everything. And everyone on Krakoa seems fine with that. Okay. <laughs> is there anyone that's missing that should be there? You think? Oh, that I would swap places. Like I'd say, someone should be on there who isn't. Or, or anyone missing in general, whether they need to replace someone or not. But is there a character that would fit the political spectrum? That, that, that like, why isn't this person on the council? Does anyone come to mind? It's a, a very good question. No one comes to my mind right now. Right? I have to think about that. Fabian Cortez. No. <laughs> well, he shows up somewhere like else. Fabian, yeah. I don't know. I think it's interesting, too, though, uh, what you're talking about before about the people that don't fit. And Sabretooth is someone who doesn't fit at all, even on Krakoa. And I love I appreciate that they made the Hellions book. I love that there's a Hellions book there for Empath and a number of other mutants that simply don't they can't really fit. And so the only way to not put everybody in the pit is we're going to send them out on these like therapy missions to go and do messed up stuff. But it's like to get to to work through their demons so uh, the fact that Sinister is involved in so many he's got his hands in so many pies he's kind of the Hellions guy and the Quiet Council guy and his own thing um, I guess I guess we have our bases covered for now although are we going to talk about how weird it is that Hickman just changed Sinister's personality and now he's just a goofball he's not the first person to do that dramatically like this because usually Sinister's either banal he doesn't really have much of any personality he's just sinister what's the other great change you've noticed in personality i mean for years i mean we've seen a lot of weird things been happening with sinister i'd say in the last decade so i'm not that this doesn't feel that askew from some of the weird things we'd seen i don't remember them all right off the top of my head because they weren't they weren't great noteworthy stories but there were multiple stories where we had weird things happening with sinister and how he was acting and and different sinisters so the fact that they've kind of planted their flag and said we're gonna go with this i'm like fine whatever it's not the sinister wasn't he like a woman and saying i'll be back or keeping it like that's the last thing i remember there was that too right there was a lot of weird stuff so like i i'm okay to just be like okay it's not the one i grew up with that i like the most but whatever it's it as long as they stay consistent in this i'm fine with it yeah, it's um, not your 90s all, x-men uh sinister cartoon anymore. No. yeah and i guess that is the strongest idea i have of sinister that that's the best personality i have of him because he he like cable and strife and so many characters in the 90s are just and, and exodus for sure are just like who's this and an editor at marvel was like this is what i know about them and they went okay and then they wrote them for an issue or two and then they forgot all about that and like, okay, so who's Strife again? And they're like, um, he's your clone or he's my clone. Maybe I'm the real Cable. Like no one knows what's going on. Is Cable still from the future? So I think that they were just kind of losing it and finding it over and over again. I'm okay with the consistency. I didn't know because, again, I've only read certain comics, uh, X-Men comics over the last decade. So that's cool to hear that. I, I can also situate him with that scene in one of the uh, issues of uh, House of X where – they, they find a whole group of Sinisters mm-hmm. uh, in year one, and one of the Sinisters is like, I'm in charge, or whatever, and then he gets shot in the head, and it's like, I'm the Sinister with the X-Team, and I'm your guy. So I'm okay with that kind of maybe happening more than once, that that was the guy they spoke to back then and made the deal with him, and since then another X-Gene or non-X-Gene Sinister is now in charge, and he's the kooky guy. Like I, Because they've also set that stage, like I can kind of... Yeah. No prize it myself, I guess. So I have a question Speaking about kooky guys. What's the kooky? What about the kooky Nimrod? 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's just like whatever, right? <laughs> See, that bugged me. I saw that and I go, why is Nimrod being all flamboyant? It, did, it didn't fit for me. Like, no, yeah, like, I, 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 like, I, I never saw him. I never saw him as the Nimrod. I saw him as another or an evolved or a different Brian yeah. Branchoff. So he's the hyper self-aware ironic one, I guess. Now, I have a question for both of you about how I'll ask Nate first and then we'll move to Paul. But how do you both feel about the, I guess, one of the tragedies of this book is that we finally see an awesome Sabretooth again and then we don't have him anymore. <laughs> like he finally looks yeah, like Sabretooth. Yeah, we were talking about that, right? But- like the art's great. Like he, he feels like this is the classic. This is the Sabretooth we want to see without any ridiculous costume redesigns. Like, this is this is the best version of, of, of Sabretooth, and now we immediately throw him off the board for an indeterminate amount of time. And that's too bad, because he looks so cool. It's true. And it's weird because, we like, post-Axis, he was kind of a good guy. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in, I think it was Uncanny or even Extermination, I don't even want to say, the tail end of the X-Men run, you see him just hanging out with all your X-Men in the mansion like it's, like it's a Tuesday, and he's suddenly a, a, a quasi-good guy now. Like, what the bleep is this guy doing here? And then to turn around, and now he's back to his evil ways all of a sudden was... Axis screwed up so many people, and it was never really truly well-resolved for anybody. Like, it was just, no. it screwed up, like, Havoc and Sabretooth and it just a bunch of them. And it has a cool idea, but no one ever really made sure and followed up on it. And so it just felt like a lot of those characters just kind of wavered. And Havoc especially, like, that's a, he can be a cool character. He can be written well. Often he isn't, but he can be. And it just felt like this did something to him, which, again, could be an interesting you know, springboard for a story, and then it was never really followed up on, and then it just kind of languished. And then when, whenever they'd use him, like, oh, yeah, he's still kind of screwed up, but we're not going to fix that. I'm like, well, why not? So finally we're kind of back to you know, Havoc feeling like Havoc again, but still kind of dealing with you know, a lot of baggage. Yeah, with Sabretooth, um, I don't know, I... <laughs> I feel like he's positioned almost perfectly. I, I, I would join in with you by saying, yeah, that Axis really screws him up. And also the X-Men, the first X-Men movie, I would say is another thing that really screws up with that character. Not only the way he's dressed, mm. but he just becomes a mindless creep. Um, and so now you're, we're kind of back, in a way, Sabretooth in the mansion, right? Like Sabretooth in the mansion, and we have that wonderful X-Men 90, uh, sorry, Wolverine 90 issue right before his apocalypse where he pops his claws into him. Just some incredible work there. And then after we get back from Major Apocalypse, he's still in the mansion. They're trying to, Gene and, and Xavier are trying to cure his the demons in his mind. And then he escapes and he almost kills Psylocke. So we have that, that time period kind of in the middle end of the 90s that is so memorable, especially again after this character is introduced to me in an animated series. And that, that feeling of there's something in the basement of the X, right? There's this the horrifying serial killer um, you know, they even have an episode in the animated series where he's there at the mansion, and Wolverine says, "If he's here, I'm not." And 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 as like, he can't let it be. Uh, now, oh, he's in belly. So in a, in a way, in this new status quo, this is the mansion, and there's a lot of messed up stuff there. Like I, I talk about how it's a place I would love to be. I talk about how I would love to be sitting there with them and looking over the setting sun, and it all just seems so appealing. But there is that darkness. There is that undercurrent of there's uh, Mystique's maybe going to burn it all down one day. Sinister's experimenting on who knows what's going on. Uh, Sabretooth at any time, based on anyone's, you know, who knows what they're going to find down there is going to bring him out. 
Um, we've got other things going on with Araco. So there, there is an unsettling degree of things that are kind of picking it beneath the skin. And I feel like that's also a kind of a thing that was going on a lot with X-Men that I've read before. That they didn't have that in Utopia. Like Utopia was just like an island and they were there. And Necrotia X happened. But there was never this same feeling of there's a saber tooth in the basement. Mm. Um, and that's what I like about so much of the X-Men comics that I loved in the 90s and, and some of the early 2000s was you never know when the Juggernaut was going to show up. And the Juggernaut doesn't stay for long. He barrels through and he Fs stuff up and then he's gone for a while. Um, and same thing happened with Sabretooth, although Sabretooth stayed later. So we don't, you know, Sabre, Juggernaut can't get there because he's not a mute. But at some point, Juggernaut's going to be there, right? <laughs> like he's going to barrel onto the island. Like I, I would love for there to be an issue where that happens, where Wolverine, you know, tries to do a one-on-one with him, or you know, a return of Saber. So I like, I kind of like that. That at the same time, that juxtaposition of this is really, really a cool place, and also things are really messed up. With it, Moira is hiding on out on the island, and she can't show herself, and she's got things going on. So there's a lot there that I think captures my imagination, and that's one of the things that I think had been lost from the X Men for so long. They were just doing things. They're just in space now. They're just now, you know, they're. They're on. They're in New York for a little bit, but now I'm like, I, there's so many threads. I can't wait to see where they go. That I propelled. How do you feel about um, the the idea? Sorry, I'm, I almost lost my thought for a second. But I'm just like with, with regards to the the we we, <laughs> we we talked briefly Sorry. about the idea of resurrection and that. You know what? What kind of? How does that can modify and change the stakes of you know the, the characters we're reading about? How do you feel about the fact that you have these characters who are the ones kind of creating this resurrection protocol and how we synergize? You know these characters and like Gold Balls actually has a purpose now. Um, you know, the, and, and again speaking to Nate's point from you know an hour ago, uh, the idea that Hickman feels like he's really read up on this stuff and and like like what did it have to take for him to really think about it and try to put these pieces together? And, and and think out the, the synergies to create a resurrection protocol because that's it's inspired it's interesting ideas and how do you co- combine different mutant powers like the only one I, I guess I was a little bit more of an issue with is where was Proteus like I can't even remember after his most recent appearance in Astonishing X-Men a few years ago I can't even remember what he was doing but besides that like these were characters that weren't doing much um, or weren't really adding much and in general didn't have very exciting powers but suddenly the synergize you know putting them all together and finally hope has a real purpose you know have, yeah. helping to kind of really kickstart everything um, you know it, it's really cool ideas what do you think of of the synergy of these of these characters well now hope is the mutant messiah right she gets to finally do it she's resurrecting like how much more messianic do you have to be to be a savior figure who's bringing back the mutant race like that i i I mean she's doing it twice like she already did it as the white phoenix right like she already did it once yes that's spark because she was the one that jump-started the what what was it called that new and the the energy that would make more mutants yeah i had a name um but now it is so much more like she's literal. Like people are bowing down in front of the five, almost worshiping. There's a religious kind of context there, uh, which again is part of culture. So there's that cult of the five that are these holy beings almost that are bringing the dead back to life. Like that's, she's not the only savior figure there, but I mean, she's kind of the, the linchpin that makes it work. So it's great that he worked that in there, that she is, 
I, I feel more so now more than ever the mutant messiah. So I, I think it's right. And there's also again there's the organic aspect of it. That if any one of the five can't operate, they're trying to find redundancies. What other mutants would allow? Could we could step in there if Proteus dies? How do you bring Proteus back without Proteus? If you know um, uh, who else? Uh, Tempus dies. Same deal. So they've got to try to find other mutants to do it. Gold balls. An egg, yes. An egg dies. Who's another egg? It could be interesting to have that happen where rather than killing Xavier, which didn't work, even though they were like, wow, I mean, Cerebro was damaged in that attack too. Is it going to work? What okay, but let's, when, let's be honest with that though. The only reason that happened so fast was they wanted to get Xavier out of Phantom X's body and into a proper Xavier Oh, is that right? That's the only reason that happened. Because <laughs> I remember reading the issue when it initially happened, he did this already, like you're already assessing the Xavier off the hop, and I remember it being the, the convoluted uh, Resurrection Protocols explanations, and Xavier was a huge key to it, right? And yet you, you off him right away for some shock effect for sure from that one issue, mm-hmm. but uh, like reading up afterwards, the whole reason behind it was just to get that Phantom X angle out of the way officially. <laughs> The does only it, reason it happened. Does so it fast. bug you, Nate? Uh, so not Nate, uh, Paul. That um, they spent, you know, we, you know, these twelve issues. You know, that, that's a lot of content, and uh, in all of it, as we said, like Xavier looks like the Maker. He's always wearing Cerebro, and it feels like there's a reason for it. Like there's a reason why we never really see his face uh, in the current timeline. And then they just kill him, and then it, I guess it didn't matter. Like and now we see his face. It, does it feel like a, a wasted mystery? It does uh, actually, yeah, because um, you even read the, if you read the, I don't know if it's in the notes of your hardcover, but there's a director's cut edition of the first issue, I think, or something. And there's a lot of redacted stuff, and, and very clear in Hickman's notes, like uh, there's always wearing this helmet. No one knows why. Never see his face. Like there, yeah, there seemed to be reason. Why. And I was, I was kind of invested in what's the reason why Xavier is being so kind of mysterious in a weird way. He's always been very, like I know they say. Um, one of Xavier's inherent flaws was he was a good person, and Moira had to kind of break that in him for him to do what needs to be done in this tenth life to make sure mutant kind flourishes. Um, so I mean, maybe that's the reason why there's a bit of uh, it's more of an ag- aggressive streak. He, he's not messing around this time. He's a little more Magneto-ish than we would know him as, you know. Um, but uh, you're right, the, 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 the helmet hiding the face thing doesn't seem to really hold any weight anymore. I don't think it's anything that's going to ever come from it. I didn't know any of that. I and there's no notes that I can see in my hardcover. That's too bad. Um, I want to go back to the ideas of the different timelines, for, or not timelines, but different uh, lifetimes of Moira. Um, one thing that always stuck out as a weird point to me, given that we... We got to see pretty, you know, extensive information in the various graphs um, on Moira's other lives. Is that it's interesting that in this particular one, in, in our Cork reality, it's the only one where she marries Joseph. It's the only one where she has Proteus as a child, and just felt like an interesting, like, like it wasn't in any of the other timelines. How does she know to do that? Why would she do that? Why would like it? Just felt like how does she know? to go get married and to have this kid who's going to have these powers. Like, it's not like she accidentally did it the first time and needs to replicate it. It just felt like this, an interesting wrinkle because we have all these other lives where she never did anything like that. So it just felt like a weird deviation that, you know, she tells Xavier so early on in that scene that's played out a few times where, you know, he reads her mind really early and that's long before she marries him, long before she does anything. And so it's just a, a weird, a weird choice. And I was just 
wondering if you guys even thought about that, if that ever kind of bumped up against it for you, or if that was something that maybe didn't even hit your mind at all. That one detail, no, I didn't even think about it. But that, but I don't know. Just my impression was reading through this that we were on the tenth life, like we couldn't be on anything else. No. She died to get to the ten, and and that the things that happened here seem to line up with what my general understanding of the X Men timeline has been. That Laura met Xavier when she was young. Um, if it says yes, says marries Joseph McTaggart. Um, she's actually Kin Ross in most of her other lifetimes. It's mm-hmm. her mar- it's her uh, maiden name. Um, the Moyer Research Institute that all lines up, and so well, it's I all correct. Like, like no, like I'm saying, yeah. like it's, it's all right. It just feels weird that if he was going to go and build out Moira had nine lives before this. It just felt weird that this this one life has such a huge change from the other lives, which ends up being so impactful to the story. Like given that Proteus ends up being a pretty key member of of you know the Resurrection Five. Protocol later. Yeah. That yeah. and again, it's such a huge difference. Like, obviously, he has to fit it into current continuity. She did do these things. She did have a child. She did have this research institute. It just it had no corollary in any of the previous lifetimes that to show such a huge change. If she decided this is the tenth, I really got to go for broke. Well, why did she spend time with Kevin McTaggart at all? Like, like yeah, no, I, I I did not really think about that. I sorry, I was I was uh, should have got to that faster in my answer, but um, yeah, um, it's something I hope to bring up. I agree. It's something I hadn't really thought about it. Now that you're bringing it up, you're completely right. And I think that they need to address it. And I think they probably will. There's going to be, I figure, Moira issues every so often, mm. um, which is how we know about, I mean, this is how it connects with the, the Mystique storyline, who, again, Mystique now is a character that freaking super important. And I really, really want to read everything about her now that in the context of the storyline, because I don't want to miss anything. Um, what? Is going on with Destiny. I mean, even seeing Destiny in that flashback in that in that lifetime where they she, she's like recognizes what Moira is and reveals to Moira that you know actually in actuality you're a mutant. You're like this is the kind of mutant you are, and um, I'm going to burn you alive so you know what it feels like. Because if you ever come for me or my my family in any of your lifetimes, you're gonna this is what's going to happen to you. Like. It's the scariest Destiny's ever been. It's so scary. Uh, the other, yes, there are other times when she's slightly unnerving. Like, in, in Necrosha, actually, she's a little bit unnerving. But, yeah, she's never this scary. She's You really see the mutant terrorist in in, in uh, Raven and in Irene in that scene. And uh, and even, like, Pyro. Like, Pyro light her up. And Pyro doesn't even twice about it. It's like, okay. And just burns a woman alive. Like, you could see the depravity, the, the what we what we are calling evil, right? And these, yeah. many, these people who are now on the island... Now, Pyro's a little bit off because he got resurrected weird, but um, he's now just a functioning member of the team, and he's used to be a terrorist who burned people alive for, for kicks. And So it is an interesting thing to see that and to be unnerved by it. I like that there's that horror aspect. There's the kind of hopeful aspects. There's the unnerving aspects. There's the philosophical aspects of this world, and um, there's that. But why not, right? If, if, it's, a, if it's scary for, for Magneto or Xavier to bring her back, why not depict her in this very unnerving way? Makes us nervous about mm-hmm. her coming back. And again, it may not be resolved till you know much later. But again, it's that idea this 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 very kind of unnerving, very so much of what he establishes is very kind of large and very heavy, right? And this is much more intimate. Like there's just something much more intimate about like Mystique wants her wife back. That's a very intimate need. That's not some weird grandiose desire that's hard for us to understand. 
everyone can understand that. She wants her loved one back. She finally has an avenue to get her loved one back. She never thought she would. She wants that. That's completely understandable yeah. and makes sense. Um, and then yeah. the other people are like, well, we don't want to lose what we built. And we know that Destiny is a, a, not going to help that. It's going to have, everything's going to fall apart. This is a bad idea. So it's just an interesting juxtaposition. So we have a very human level threat in the middle of all this other crazy shit that they're going to do. Like when you get to Ten of Swords, that's very weird and crazy and big stuff. But I, I want to come back to this much more intimate threat of what happens when Mystique is tired of waiting and wants her wife back. Yeah. yeah. Moira's the big secret, too, right? The only people who know about Moira being a mutant and, and this resurrection thing is Charles and Eric. I don't think anyone else knows about Moira's involvement in this whole thing. Like, if they kill Moira tomorrow, what happens? Does this just end and when the life just plays out and that's the 616? Or do we wipe and do we get to see the 11th life? Are we, we got to see that 11th life. <laughs> like, well, that's right. a good question. Like, are we just part of more like is the marvel universe just only there as long as moira's there like or does it yeah does it right? exist like without that, her that, that implication alone is, is is what i'm trying to figure out right like if i were to guess i'll tell you my guess after paul goes <laughs> right because they, they buried moira in this little cocoon in the middle of deep in the middle of kakoa you know like five doors down from her favorite is hiding in the other pit of kakoa in her no space and, <laughs> right she's in her little you know, hidden bubble right and We've led off with Moira being this big thing and this big destruction, but we've not seen anything or heard anything about her since. Right? Like, I'm, I'm at Ten of Swords, start at Ten, start at Ten of Swords, but between end of House of Ten, Powers of Ten, and the Ten of Swords, there's no mention of Moira whatsoever. No visits, no nothing. Isn't there one scene where they do another flashback in the X-Men series to the year whatever, to this, uh, to, to immediately following this storyline? I thought, I thought that the end of the first Hickman arc, they do one more conversation with her. Am I mistaking that? You, you could be correct. I can't quite remember, but if, if that's it, then there's one, <laughs> right? But she's like, you know, her, she, she may have a bigger part to play yet in the big tapestry that is this plan, but... You know, but she she has to be a big secret. No one else can know because anyone finds out about that, about her ability to resurrect and change the timeline. And and the reason for that was help me remember. I think they say this in House of X. The reason for that, why no one can know, is because the the reason because the reason because the reason why what her mission is because the the answer is we never win. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's and that's why no one can know because if anyone goes, oh, Mora, you've lived a number of lives. What have you learned? She can't tell the truth and say, I've learned. The reason why I'm doing all of this is because I've lived at least ten times, and you, that we never live, we never win, we never survive, and that would destroy the whole point of the utopia. I guess they're worried everything would fall apart if if they're like, well, there's no point in any of this because we can't win. It's futile. I guess that's, that's the reason. Is that correct? Anyone? That's the end game. Yeah, I think. Yeah, to finally succeed. So here's, they're all alive. They always fail. Mm-hmm. Here's what I would do. Here's what I would do if I was writing it, and we'll see what Hickman does. Of course, um, he's. There, I mean, I hope he stays on for a number of years. I hope as many of the writers who are on with him now can as well. Hopefully, this plays out for ten years. Hopefully, this is a ten-year project. Right? Has to be ten. 
Um, five would be fine too, but at least five. They, I, I really hope there's no rebooting the status quo for the X Men at least for another five years. No, they I can't. This is it. They've gone all in. Even even the action figures are going to have the proper Kakoa language on it and stuff. They've gone all in on this. I was not going to get them, and I'm like, I'm all in on everything now. <laughs> right. Um, so, and and again. Feige, I hope Feige's getting, like, this is a meaningful status quo, that this, why not find a way for the X-Men or the mutants to be brought into the MCU this way? They this have their way? own islands. They have their own island. They used to live among you. They used to live among everybody. Um, they have a very powerful telepath or telepath that mind-wiped everybody so that they forgot that they existed. They're on this island, and we've found something's messed up in the, in the South Pacific and uh, someone has, ma- has just made a, a call out to the world of re-announcing the X-Men or the mutants' existence and they're going to make a deal. Like, great. That would be a – you know, do it, Feige, whatever you got to do. But what I would do if I was writing this, I'd do the 10 years and then at the end of the 10 years, you show us in an epilogue the 11th life. And in the 11th life, Mora solves it. Mora figures it out. And they survive. And then we're left to go, oh, crap, because the 616 is the 10th life. It's not the 11th one. So it leaves us to lead. Either either we go, well, maybe she figures it out in both lives, but maybe not. Maybe there's hope in the 10th life and she just kind of dies of natural causes. Or we're screwed. The X-Men are always, again, back to that minority metaphor – is a minority group destined for we, we have in our constitution in Canada and same in the states a, a, a set of documents a belief that all people are created equal and we should all be treated equally and we're seeing you know day to day in our own societies that we're constantly fraught with strife and conflict over those promises and those documents uh, and the universal you know, human rights as well declares the same thing we, we, we are not living up to our expectations as a species, that we should be able to bring about greater harmony and equality according to our constitutions, according to our bills of rights. So we are already fighting this weird fight where is it possible to live in a society, in a system where we have a majority group and minority groups? Are minority groups ever going to get a fair break? Uh, is the 10th life just going to be wait and see, we'll figure it out, but but Hickman says as he leaves the series, by the way, in Moyer's 11th life, it worked, and we're like, "Oh, what about us?" <laughs> like, I guess it's, and then at the end of it, it's like, "I guess we'll see what happens for us." Like that kind of thing. That that's how kind of I would do it, right? Where you're like, you don't, you're, you're hanging on for that eleventh life until the very end, and you know, who knows what's going to happen to Krakoa at the end of this ten years. Let's say, let's say ten years. But um, that's this is one of the things that I'm so excited about, right? Because I'm thinking about this stuff when I don't have to. Like, I want to be thinking about comics excitedly like this waiting for issues it almost it almost guys made me break and start buying monthlies i thought about buying monthlies again because of this. I'm, not, I'm not there yet but that's how far this has pushed me wow it's fascinating it's interesting i mean again i mean you're, you're hoping there's an 11th life i mean i guess part of what moira's <laughs> whole thing is that she doesn't yeah. know if she gets more than 10 so this is yeah. why this is the one where she really you know can't mess around the, the only kind of fear I have in anything like this where they restructure and rebuild, you know, kind of the X universe. And I like that so many people are enjoying it and it's really revitalized interest in the line. But it does make me a little bit curious, like, how do you go backwards? Because eventually Hickman will leave. And eventually, you know, uh, having a strong presence really guiding the books, not just editorially, but someone like Hickman, who's kind of a, a the, you know, this mastermind, eventually when he's gone... 
does this work without him? Does this work without an overarching mastermind? And then if not, how do you go back to a quote-unquote the more traditional X-Men? The longer you spend in something like this, how do you do it? How do you go backwards? And I don't know what the answer is there. Like, I, I, I like when characters get pushed into new directions. Like, I, I, I'm a big fan of Daredevil. There was a whole stretch of Daredevil where it kept pushing the character further and further. And then Mark Wade really, like, took the character in, in really interesting directions where everyone knew who Matt, Matt Murdock was Daredevil. He couldn't practice law in New York, so he moved to San Francisco because uh, they would still allow him to, like, practice there. But everyone knew who he was. And then when Mark Wade left the book, I'm like, well, now what? And, the, you know, the next time you see Daredevil, no one knows who he is anymore. You know, there's a secret identity and there's this big question of, well, how do you put that genie back in the bottle? Now, thankfully, they ended up coming up with an organic reason that fit within Daredevil's world and Daredevil's characters that had been established at that point as to how this happened. So I was, they didn't tell you right away, but eventually there was a payoff and I felt like, okay, well, that makes sense. I'm okay with it. Let's move on. I don't know how you do that for not just one character, but an entire species, an entire country. I don't know how you go backwards. I hope you. I hope you don't go. I mean, I guess that pre pre you know supposes that it will go back or it needs to go back. I mean, yes, people often want to reset things to when they were readers of the books. That's what the editors do and the writers often do. So I guess the hope is if you have a, a big enough of a status quo change. A big enough shift. And again, Hickman's and, and, and company are picking up on so many other storylines. We've already had a Utopia Island. And in AVX, they had a utopic city-state. Some kind of weird kind of floating in the cloud. Remember that? Like okay. floating in the clouds thing? I just read that to Zach, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and we don't – it didn't really do anything. Like, like there was no industry. There was no economy. There's no army. There's no religion. There's no culture. It wasn't a fully formed idea yet. It wasn't what we have now. But it's like if all of these ideas have been percolating and have been pulled from so many different spaces, maybe you can make it a new set, enough of a status quo. Like I didn't know for the longest time because I wasn't reading Avengers at the time that the Avengers left the mansion and had like an Avengers fortress in Central Park. Hmm. And you go back and you read the original Secret Wars and you're like – they're like, oh, this big building shaped like an A. I'm like, okay. And now that Triskelion's a thing in the Marvel Universe. Now it's like, that's where S.H.I.E.L.D. is. That's an Ultimate Universe thing. So it's like people import... People, and, and Triskelion's also in the MCU. So it's like we import things and mix and, and match things that really weren't good stories. They impacted us when we were younger. So if they do try to revert to a mansion, which might happen one day, I guess you wait a few years until the people who were teenagers are reading who are reading this get into power and they're like hey let's kind of do a Kokoa thing again that's my hope that it's it's powerful enough that like so many other good storylines they just kind of move into the mythology and then they move out for a time and then they come back in again because nothing is stable in this no this you, bring, you brought up the point with Feige. I mean, I guess a big part of it's going to come from when 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 do people next experience the X Men in a movie franchise? What that's 100%. going to look like, and obviously, yeah. there's going to be synergy. Like I don't, I'm sure you remember when the first X Men movie came out. If you looked at the comics that came out that summer, they were. Uh, I don't want to say garbage, but they were pretty close. Like they were, they were indecipherable. They were. I remember like they had like a little box is like you know uh, inspired yep. the hit movie, and I'm like, 
really? No one's going to pick this up and know what is happening. Uh, it, it didn't feel recognizable. It was so in the middle. And so part of me appreciated that because if you'd been a fan already, then, you know, you were get you were in the middle of something and you didn't have to placate, you know, normies uh, trying to come in and join, and join the clubhouse. Flat yeah, flat scans. Whereas, you know, so... It, I, I appreciate that part, but from a marketing perspective, it didn't make any sense whatsoever. You have this movie that you're hoping is going to work, and you don't try to tie it in at all. And now we almost have too much synergy at times where you know things will really start to move. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Like I don't know if you're ever going to get an Iron Man that doesn't sound like Robert Downey Jr. Everyone's trying to do their Robert Downey Jr. That's just how the character plays now, for better or for worse. Um, you know, same thing with you know Hawkeye got revolutionized when Matt Fraction did his run with David Aha. We're never going to get a different. Hawkeye anymore like that's just who Hawkeye is now that was such a, a seminal moment for the character that's what they go back to until someone revolutionizes it again right and that hopefully I, I, I like what you're asking you're talking about before with that main question of like what happens after this because um, I'm sorry to jump around to comics that aren't House of X but I'm pretty sure it's X-Force I can grab it uh, at one point it's Domino right she gets up and she's walking around Kokoa and she eventually meets and talks with Peter on the beach and in her narration she's like all of this seems like it's so perfect right now. All of this seems like it belongs. All of this seems inevitable that it'll be around forever. And she's like, but it won't, right? Like at one point, all this could be different. And it seems like it's immovable. It seems like it's irresistible, but um, I, I know that it won't always last. And so uh, it sounds very metatextual, right? That the authors are like, guys, you know, enjoy it while it's here. Rokoa won't be around. And but she's like, I can't even think about what's next. And I'm like, yeah, that's like all of us because this is so engaging, I think, for most of us that we can't either – either you think about what's been in the past or you can't conceive of the future. None of us gathered here would have thought – even though we read AVX, even though we read the Utopia stuff and Necrotia would have thought, well, then they're going to be on an island and, and Deadly Regenesis uh, – yeah, Deadly Genesis. Rokoa is going to be back. Everyone's going to re- be resurrected. They're on a new island. It made a you know a utopic state, and like we would never have just said that's what's going to happen in twenty whatever nineteen. So I guess we just wait and see for the next big mind <laughs> mind trust to come together and kind of say, okay, let's do something else with them. But I, yeah, I, I do hope I, that that there is that MCU transition because, frankly, I think that they need the differentiation. I think that if they go. Where did the X-Men live? Like, okay, where, where, where do the Avengers live? An Avengers Tower! Okay, great. And where do uh, the Fantastic Four live? Oh, they live in the big four plaza, the Baxter building. Like, everyone has a space. Where do the X-Men live? In a mansion in Winchester, New York. Like, Westchester, New York. Like, okay. How much cooler is it to have an island in the South Pacific? I feel like it would really d- separate them from the Marvel Universe and make them very distinct. Not in New York. I don't know. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> it's okay. Well, going back to the the comics for a sec before we, I went two cents on the movies um, I think th- this Hickman like I said at the top I think this is Hickman's vision and I think it's going to live in this bubble of Moira's life and you'll see it from start to finish we'll see the, the this course of this life play out and when the life is over whichever whatever way it shakes out um, it'll end the status quo and it'll be kind of a fresh start for whoever wants to take over after this is going to be his baby and from start to finish I don't think this utopian uh, Kukoan uh, some of government and everything will, will like may, maybe it will maybe be successful enough and it catches on people want to keep it but I think this is going to be his thing and I think whoever comes after is just going to start fresh um, 
kind of like what the on all different Marvel did after Secret Wars in, in a certain way. Um, it's just hard to do it satisfyingly. I guess is is my my point before is yeah. you know like, like I know it can be done. It's just can you do it in a way that's like technically Spider Man One More Day reset Spider Man was it you know was it a great way to do it? No. Did we have a lot good come come from it? I would say yes. I mean they did clear the decks and you know they got to do a lot of fun stories afterwards. But so I, I always kind of said that's like a very difficult birth. You know like you, you like the baby after it was born, but it, damn it nearly nearly killed the mother, and that's what One More Day felt like. So I'm hoping we don't have that. You know that kind of idea. Um, I know that something you really don't like, Paul, is uh, Dan Slott's uh, Silver Surfer. And that was a book where it felt like it took the character and really changed him and 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 gave him a love story that felt really epic. But when it ended, it felt so natural and so wonderful. And it also they Dan Slott kind of built in a way that if they never referenced it ever again, that was okay and it made sense in the narrative of the story. I don't know how again you do that with the X Men necessarily, but I like when they can kind of build that into the building block somehow. Well, this kind of came out of nowhere, and it can it can go, and it can start over. Like, like look at Avengers right now. Jason Aaron has them living in a celestial in the North Pole. Ugh. You know, eventually they'll just go back to a mansion or something. Like, this is just the way it is for now. Hold on. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's okay though, because this is a modern mythology to me, and it's like the Legend of Zelda, and every game you get a new version, and the characters have similar names a lot of the time, and they often will look similar, but you get a new variation of them, and that's that's fine. There's different versions of the Adventures of Hercules, so this is a take on it. I agree. I think that based on Hickman's previous projects, pretty much, yeah, when, when he does something, he does it, and when he leaves, it's kind of, it feels like he's left and uh, you can you can borrow stuff from it, you can reference it, but it's not going to remain the same, mm-hmm. and that's fine too. I I, I I appreciate the Marvel universe just because they have not had the reboots that the DC universe has had. So you can have people referring to this time, and they can refer to relationships they had on the island and things that they did, and how close they feel they got in some regards. Um, and that's that's for rich storytelling too. People can talk about. Sabretooth can bring up the time that they you threw me in a pit for ten years. Like he can bring that up in the future and mm-hmm. be like, "Now I, you know, I want you to deal with that that aspect of my history." So the Marvel universe is like a burn victim that has so many graphs, like yeah. different continuity graphs that have been kind of added on. It's still the same person. They just look very different with each graph that you put on. Whereas the DC universe, I don't even know how you can you know reconcile. It's like a whole different person each time. Like it's not even the same. Um, so two quick questions. Um, one question is first for Paul. Because I know this is something that stuck out and bugged you from the beginning, and I'm wondering if you felt any differently, or if it's changed at all, or if rereading House of X has changed any of that for you. But I know when you first kind of read uh, House of X and Powers of Ten the first time, uh, Storm's characterization really bugged you, especially you know when they do kind of the rebirth ceremony, um, and it was very kind of like a cult, and that's not really how we're used to seeing Storm of all people get personified. Has that? Uh, lessened in terms of how much it's bugged you or does it still kind of stick out as a sore thumb and how has her portrayal and Marauders etc I know that we're kind of jumping ahead in that question but how has that informed how you're feeling about it I guess it depends on what book she's in and how she's being written she seems to kind of jumping around with her Um, but I guess as Nate mentions a few times for characterization sometimes Hickman doesn't quite get it so I think Storm is, is kind of a weird one for him um yeah, I, I was I was kind of taken aback by you know here are these characters that just got resurrected. They're being paraded out in front of the whole island, all butt naked. 
we are a mutant, we are a mutant. Like, you know, this weird chanting kind of stuff. And it was just really bizarre. I don't know if Storm should have been the character to do that. I don't, I can't, can't think of who else it should have been. But I guess, yeah, it did throw me off. And I didn't quite, uh, I, I didn't buy into that kind of weird scene to have everyone kind of exposed and then and yeah they hear a third curl and they're being being celebrated but they gotta be standing up there on stage in the nude and being i guess this is this is their culture i guess to nate's point like they're establishing culture this is they're celebrating the fact that like the five have done their work that that you know that they do have this you know this resurrection protocol this is something that is inherently about them being mutants and so this is a time of celebration that's not of a time of mourning uh, of who they were it's time of celebration of who they are and that they are mutant and that they can survive anything because of you know mutancy and working together like the whole idea of the five is collaboration and synergy and that you know if you work together mutant kind will be better and that we can't be all working separately at, at odds with each other it has to be you know this 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 synergy this is what mutant kind really is it's all about working together using one's gifts together in a way that humanity cannot um, so I know it comes off as you know this weird zealotry from a character we're not used to seeing it, but I think it does you know speak to we are establishing this culture for these people. Yeah, I, I was sour on it, and uh, I've sweetened. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that makes the storm characterization so weird is that looking back at this book, its collection, she's not really in it a lot. No, so you don't get a sense of how Storm is either acclimatizing or shifting or you're dealing with this new dynamic. And so it does feel like she's out coming out of nowhere. But then when I think about it, like she's been worshipped as a goddess. She's been a queen. Um, and she's been leader of the X-Men and the Morlocks. So I'm like having her as like master of ceremonies or as a priestess in this role. I'm kind of like, who would be better as a new kind of cult, cultural priestess, I guess Storm kind of works and that, you know, the idea of like fertility, it's almost like a fertility ceremony or you know, that resurrection ceremony, not having them clothed. I mean, normally I think they would in some kind of religious context, people might not have all their clothes on, but they might have like a white shawl on to cover their nakedness. But, um, I, I guess a lot of religious, especially things centered on very holy rituals, from the outside often looks strange. I mean, if we just you know, take it out as an objective kind of way of looking at things. So I guess it's not the most shocking scene. I, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of just coming around to it. Um, again, especially because they, yeah, someone just came back to life and, Oh, um, there's also the whole matter of like surprising. What do they say in uh, new, new Avengers? The, the savage land is a space with surprisingly surprising amounts of acceptable nudity. Um, Krakoa is a place with surprising amounts of acceptable nudity. Everyone, it's very Claremont-esque. Like, Claremont, the more I get to understand him and his work, he, I mean, he's very much about, like, he's on, like, S&M stuff with the Hellfire Club, um, you know, Roke in, in her bedroom in, 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 like, you know, the Jim Lee era, just, like, being buck naked and, like, suds are kind of comfortably covering her body parts. Um, you know, later on, I don't know if Claremont's writing this, but where when was it when... Uh, Psylocke licked motor oil off of Cyclops. Is that Claremont also? No. A lot, no. It's just after. It's, it's Nicissa, but it's just after Claremont leaves. So there, there's a lot of like seething sexual undertones already in a lot of the X-Men, especially in the Claremont stuff. So oh, that was like 90s-esque it. though, right? Everyone had big boobs and it's very sexualized. Well, no, I'm not, I'm not, like right? 80s, 80s Claremont stuff. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of these undertones. Um, 
and then coming to understand Claremont himself, like he was kind of like into that stuff. So again, Hellfire Club is, is a good example of that. So this is to me like that scene in the Matrix 2 where they go to their utopia and it's just a whole bunch of like a big rave, you know, in, in Zion and they're all kind of like half naked and like licking motor oil. I don't know what they were licking off each other. So I would have loved it. Um, and, you know, bumping and grinding. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what Krakow is. It's a bunch of really attractive mutants. <laughs> all just kind of. So I feel like nudity is not maybe maybe culturally to them. It's just not as much of a thing as it is in the West. I mean, goodness knows in Europe, nudity is not as big of a pariah as it is in North America. So I don't know. I, 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 I'm okay with that stuff being different. If it wasn't too different, I guess you'd be like, what's the point? I, I am going to jump ahead for something that I will eventually get back to when we talk about Dawn of X uh, and, and those kind of books. But uh, when we talk about the idea of uh, you know establishing a Krakoan culture, something that is not mentioned here but eventually does uh, feature in is the idea of what happens to depowered mutants from who those who did not get their powers back and how yes. how they are on you know how they are on still welcome to Krakoa and how they go through their own kind of uh, experience to be reborn. Uh, how do you feel about? And again, we will get back to that in more depth in future episodes. But how do you feel about that experience that they? go through and I don't know if you've actually maybe read that Nate what, what's that in uh, I want to say X-Men oh, god I, yes. yeah, I don't remember yes it's so, X-Men book I, the second volume is, is on its way so I haven't read the second volume yet. okay I believe it's in there then so I'll, I'll, so I will touch on that, not to spoil it for Nate, but I will touch on the, the, the interesting part of Resurrection where you, you have the ability to come back different so there are certain memories or an injury or something that wasn't quite right that you don't want you can do that but others think that's not coming back whole yeah right i've read about that kind of conversation in x-force is that what you're referencing yeah yeah that's interesting and again the philosophies we'll hopefully talk about later when we get to hellions and also a little bit in in the first few issues of x-force yeah about all what all that means uh to, to Adam's question. I haven't read it, but I don't. I don't mind the spoiler. I. I just want to talk about this stuff. I find it very fascinating. The idea that humans aren't allowed. We, this is back at the beginning of this session. I guess if you're going to divide this into, into two episodes, I don't know what you're going to do. But anyway, the beginning of this. This is one big one. Don't worry. About, okay. Uh, how humans aren't allowed, and, and they can be invited, right? Because the gates are like the veins of Krakoa. Krakoa needs to give permission to whomever enters, and Kitty finds out in Marauders. I think it's Marauders. I don't think she finds out here, does she, yep. at the end? Marauders. Uh, that she can't go through the gates. And she's, like, upset by it. Why doesn't Krakoa want me? This is supposed to be flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. We're, we're both mutants. So that's fascinating. Uh, which humans would be allowed access is one matter. Like, can you ask Krakoa? And does Krakoa have a say? Maybe you could ask, can Brian Braddock come through? And Krakoa says, not him. But, you know, you're someone else can come through. Um what about people that aren't technically mutants anymore? Back to Adam's point, too. That's fascinating also, like the politics of that. How will that be perceived by certain people who are like, I want my human family to be the on the island. You're really a human. Why are you even here? Well, I wasn't born a human. I was born a mutant. Well, I don't see it. What powers do you have? They're gone. Like, well, you sound like a human who's lying to me. Well, don't worry. Like, all of that is fascinating to me. And what happens when you have a country and there's, you know, there's this whole Zionist kind of perhaps other allusion here to, to Israel about 
what is Israel, right? It's a democracy. Is it an ethnostate? Is it an ethnostate of Jewish people only? Well, no, because there are Palestinians and there are other people that live there as well. So it needs to be a democracy for everybody. Well, Genosha is very much an ethnostate. It is the place for mutants. And it's the place for mutant refugees. We're in the refugee state still. We're still getting refugees back. But what happens when they've arrived? What are the limitations on visitors? What are the limitations on people who are between human and mutants? What about people that have an alternate version of them in a different reality who's a mutant, but they're not? Can I live here? Um, how, how strict are they on that policy? And then what are the outcomes of that? Then, you know, isn't that a sinister thing in and of itself that no one else is allowed? You were once outcasts, minorities yourselves in our world, and you know it was like to feel that way. So you're, you're not going to let anyone else come to that your space now? You're going to exclude? Is exclusion, is segregation the answer? There's often been these interesting debates about segregation, assimilation, and anti-racism, where you don't do either. You integrate. Integration. You don't make someone become like you. You don't separate yourselves. You integrate harmoniously. Krakoa, philosophically, is segregation, which also is not good. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's the fascinating thing, too, that I think is worthy of conversation. And the mutants are also different. They're both minority groups, and yet they're not. They are the next stage in human evolution. So ultimately, there's that science fiction aspect of what do you do with a group that is going to supplant you? Mm -hmm. Um, And I I love all of the different politics that that's rife with, how the complexity is of that. And that kind of brings me back to what I was talking about before about the human supremacists. This book, these books, all the Dawn of X stuff is rife with all these new threats of people who are quite overtly human supremacists. Mm. And it's not hard to see the analog to our day uh, of, of white supremacy. But, um, I mean, that that was the Friends of Humanity. The Friends of Humanity were basically just like sapien Nazis in the 90s. And, you know, it, playing Wolfenstein and growing up around a dad who loved like Hogan's heroes, there's nothing better than slapping a, <laughs> slapping a Nazi or something like that. Like that was always a, a bad guy that was easy to kind of pinpoint as a bad guy in almost any of the texts that we grew up with. Mm. So with when they when they were in X-Men, you have your striker, Reverend Striker, who's just a bigot, and you're like, yeah, that's a bad guy. I'm okay with the X-Men laying the smack down on people like that. That's the kind of thing that I think has been missing from a lot of the X-Men books, that you're like, okay, you're on Utopia, and you don't like the Avengers, okay, but but where are those Sentinels in the same way? Where are those bigots in the same way? They're just it's just a, a threat everywhere from every angle, and it's like the the stronger the X Men get, the more their enemies come out of the woodwork, mm. um, which which heightens that kind of drama as well. So um, the, these conversations about what what really is the difference between a human and a mutant, and can they date? Obviously, someone's going to date a human at some point. Can it, can he can he come to the island? No, not him. Don't Nate when so, you when you, when you've like but the baby has to be mutant. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, right. When the baby's not mutant. Well, I mean, the Quicksilver's kid wasn't a mutant, right? Like at least originally, it was Luna was a child, a human child born to an inhuman and a mutant, like. That was kind of messed up. Um, Nate, have, have you, uh, as much as part of your kind of binging and, and buying everything Dawn of X, um, have you also, I guess, got X-Men Fantastic Four? No, I've heard people talk about it. Is that is that in the... It's in the... It, like, it's in the, it's in the... It's in the scope. I mean, it definitely ties in. I mean, 
yeah, I mean, you can't have Franklin and not, you know, he's a mutant. So, I mean, you have that very, in the first issue of House of X, you have that very kind of intimidating moment with Cyclops when he's like, you can, you know, tell Franklin he's got a home on Kokoa. Telling that to his biological parents is kind of messed up. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's definitely an, an enjoyable story. It's got some really nice artwork by Terry Dodson, and it's written by Chip Sadarsky, who I really enjoy. So I would definitely add that to your list. Okay, I'll, I don't I don't love Dobson, but I kind of have to because I'm going all in. What about uh, but but um, the other comic was it Empire? Empire. What about yeah. Empire? That's okay, you, you can you can read the Empire tie-ins because it does stay relatively X centric. Like, like for there's sure. actual X there's actual X Men issues like numbered X Men issues that fall through, and I believe there's also like Empire X Men tie-ins. Am I correct, Adam? Uh, I yeah, I guess the, no, yeah. there is. You know, I, I will say the the X Men Empire tie-ins are not super essential, but they're fun and they're a little bit weird. I'll probably just get it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, be, I'm all in. Before I kind of bring us to a close for today, one thing I do want to ask about because it does permeate not just House of X Powers of Ten, but the entire line going forward is uh, obviously they not just do we get kind of a revolution in terms of the content and what the storylines are, but aesthetically there's a huge design shift with, uh, developed by Tom Muller. Um, so all the production design on everything from the maps, the text, uh, you know, every, there's a uniform look, even the trades that all have kind of a unique color scheme to them. That kind of, they all kind of look, you know, really well together on the shelf. Even the Dawn of X trades where you're getting like months of uh, like all the issue ones and then you know whatever that came out that month that all fits under Dawn of X they again have very you know clear aesthetic looks what do you think about how aesthetically Hickman and Tom Muller have kind of redesigned the X books they definitely look different than anything else on the shelf I think it's fantastic I love synergy right so you, you make something that you know and it shows that they're making a very big conscious effort to make this one cohesive thing it's like Hickman's Feige you know it's like there's this very clear vision um, of what they want to do. They put a lot of time and research and money into and, and design choices into building this uh, world. So this, this you know, like I said, even if it just lasts the X amount of time for Hickman's run, it'll be a complete lovely collection on your shelf. And it might be just a big experiment. Well, can we succeed here in X-Men? Can we bring this over to Avengers down the road? Can we bring this over to Fantastic Four or, this, or Spider-Man's corner of editorial? Like, this, this as much as this is a, a brand new kind of uh, fresh start for the X-Men, this might be kind of the guinea pig for a lot of new initiatives going forward mm. for how you know Marvel wants to, to publish things going forward. And I think this is a, this is a great start. I think it's a, a very nice way to do it. Yeah, I agree. I like the uniformity. I dread four years down the road when someone gets a bright idea of like, ah, switch it. And then my trays don't look all uniform on the shelf. But uh, let's hopefully it doesn't do that. I mean, Marvel now stayed with it for a while, so I have that nice kind of unified-looking Marvel now stuff. Um, but they did kind of end the everything gets released as a hardcover with a digital coupon in the back, which I'm like, ah, whatever. Um, I, but I do like it. Yeah, it's nice. It's very good. Now, one thing that they have just announced about a month ago is that 
Um, a lot of the Dawn of X, I don't know if it's going to be all of them, but at least starting this August with Marauders and Excalibur, they are going to be start doing the kind of oversized hardcovers collecting the first year of the books. Um, so I'm interested to see how those will look on a shelf. I mean, I still think I'll stick with the, you know, the, the single trades uh, because you never know with hardcovers when they'll decide to just abandon it because it is a higher, yeah. like, I, I, I do, I'm very thankful, and, and I don't think you guys are really care that much about collected editions kind of stuff because i follow a lot of groups that care a lot about how collected editions work and they're always working on like the mapping and for like different lines and like people really care a lot about this stuff um i always feel bad for dc fans because their stuff gets constantly uh, resolicited and canceled and then they reformat and then they change the spines like marvel still does it too but to a much lesser extent um like i would say that the marvel's trades like their their ongoing trades for years have looked the same like they've looked the same for probably the last eight years uh there was a the all new marvel now that came out of avx had a a a different spine that lasted for a little while then they shifted and it's been pretty consistent so i'm very thankful for that so i think that they will kind of continue this as long as the hickman era experiment continues i do wish i kind of would be able to get these hardcovers because i think they might look nice but i don't know i i'm just too worried that what happens when they stop I might go down a weird places and buy them both. <laughs> I don't know. I'll keep you informed. <laughs> it's interesting um, too. Like when we talk about like you and I and Nate, we both have the House of X hardcover, um, which is a gorgeous book. But I almost prefer it without the dust jacket. Like with the dust jacket on, it just looks like a you know any any other comic. But you take it off and it looks so different. You know, it's it's got the bold red. Uh, it's got like you know the X on it, and it also has the House of X kind of badge on it. it as a very yeah clean design aesthetic whereas you have the regular one it doesn't really look the same and i feel like that's kind of why i'm glad i didn't wait and get a soft cover version because again it wouldn't have the same design aesthetic although i'm a little sad because again i have all these trades of this era except for uh, ten of swords i have the hardcover because i got a, a good deal on it and then house of x same thing i have because i pre-ordered it early before the price changes because they realized how big it was going to be um uh, so i'm glad i end up with these two hardcovers so on the shelf it's going to look weird I don't know. I like that. I, I also got the hardcover of Tenor Swords. It's coming up Tuesday, right? So, yeah. um, well, as when this was recorded, it'll have been Tuesday. And it, <laughs> I, it doesn't matter. It's release date. Uh, February 2nd. 2009, 2021. <laughs> uh, but well, who knows when someone's going to listen to this? Uh, maybe they're going to listen 10 years from now and they're going to flick back at this era and be like, ah, oh, Hickman's leaving, but now Adam Chapman, the new editor-in-chief, has put in a new head. Um, so no, I behind like- the times on both these hardcovers if you guys are going to have both of these things <laughs> his first order of business is a whole <laughs> review of Omnibuy um, no I, I like when major storylines I'm fine with that I, so I'm okay with them standing out I'm okay with major spikes like being a little spike on the shelf as, as a way of kind of almost being bookends as it were between eras I'm, I'm totally fine with it now, uh, Paul, how have you, I mean, you didn't, you don't have House of X yet in any collected format. Have you been collecting? Like, are you going to have on your shelf any of these kind of trades, or is that in your future? That is a very good question. I, I I've bought very few comics for the last little while. Like I've, I've been keeping up with my my Thor collection from the Jason Aaron stuff. That's uh, been trickling out. Um, so I got to finish that collection off. Um, you know, Nate suddenly did the, the deep dive into getting everything involved. Um, you know, I, like, I've enjoyed 
this for the most part. Like, I've been reading all the books. I've been keeping tabs on things. There have been a few does, like Fallen Angels, which we'll discuss at some point, I'm sure, down the road. I, I bought them. I bought them. on their way. <laughs> but uh, on the overall, like, you know, I, I was pleasantly surprised by some of the books, disappointed by others, um, and others uh, have been, you know, very intriguing, and it's, it's, been, a, it's been a good ride. Like, it's, it's nice to be, to be looking forward to enjoying X books rather than, you know, I used to pick them up from the local shop when I was buying singles and go, oh, I'm going to be dead. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I know what you mean, though. There's a time, like, there have been multiple times where, like, I felt like I had to, like, divorce certain comics, like, just to drop it. And I remember Kelly being like, I, I, I think it was really hard for me with Exiles, because I had it from the beginning. And it was so yeah. dreadful. And then Kelly was like, why are you buying this? You're not enjoying it. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I can't quit you. Like, <laughs> like I, I just... I can't. Exiles was the top of my list every single week, I, I, or month. I would have taught my first book I would read. I was so jacked to always get every one, and they went downhill. It's like, oh, it's too bad. But you got to stay true to it because it's, it was you just you gone that far. You just got to see it through to the end, right? Or maybe at some point, maybe it'll turn, and it doesn't always turn. But, but I feel like that's such a comic book thingy about us. Like, I feel like if a TV show becomes shit, I don't think you're going to watch it anymore. But with a comic book, you'll keep buying it, and we'll keep reading it, and I don't know why because that shelf it's that shelf you want the shelf to look right you want it to look complete and especially if you're like i'm eight volumes in and volume nine is atrocious you have to get it right yeah oh i i know yeah i don't know i just I don't know issue with my power ranger run right there's two issues uh two trades for, for uh, this one storyline that margaret bennett does after shattered grid it's like oh it's so bad but i got for the completest thing he needs to get it so it's on my shelf you know it's for the sake of doing it but. and then our ancestors can come and look at our shelves as, as you know <laughs> after we've died and they can kind of go like why did he have this and they can have discussions about it but you know uh paul if, you, if you're not going to do something or you're going to miss something Thing, don't you can do it in your next life okay this is just you're on life six so when you die it's okay you get reset and you're gonna do it all again and then you're just gonna buy all the right things and have all the trades line up perfectly and you'll have this hardcover you you get the mystique uh, marvel the legend mystique. yeah marvel yeah. that you always wanted <laughs> how sad would that be if you used your ability to reincarnate just to get better stuff you've learned nothing <laughs> so fi- final thoughts before we uh you know we, we both we all go into our respective uh i don't know uh Kirkoan habitats for the evening return to our our covid isolation <laughs> yeah. so let, let's let's i mean we usually often do ranking systems i mean like how would you how would you rank this this story i mean maybe from your first reading to your I don't know, in Nate's case, maybe fifth or sixth reading, I don't know. But, like, you know, I mean, it feels like with Nate, it sat with him and it kept clawing at him and kept making him more interested and making him have these questions and think about it. To the As he said before, he was thinking about it when he didn't mean to think about it, which is a good thing. It meant, it, it meant something to him. It meant it, 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 it you know, stoked some, some fire in his head that made him want to know more, made him want to ask questions, made him want to talk about it. So... I guess for you, Paul, like how would you rank this in terms of, you know, I, I guess there's different ways to look at it in terms of overall kind of, you know, storytelling in terms of comics, in terms of an X-Men story. Um, obviously, it brought you back into paying more of a closer attention to the book. So it obviously achieved its goal. But how do you think it how well do you think it actually managed to do that? No, overall, I think I'd give it a nine out of ten. Um the art is astonishingly amazing. You know, the fact that it was able to give me emotional resonance and just make me react and, and have deeper meaning. Um, 
he built it in a way that was understandable and somewhat grounded. Um, whereas I remember, you know, trying to dive into New Avengers, and it took me a while to understand what the incursions were all about and really get it. Right? This is a bit more straightforward. I guess it's like there, there are moments where the the graphs or the the notes or whatever, like mid mid issue, kind of take you out of it a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, if you throw that crap at the end of the book, well, I just come over and not bother. That's my that might be more likely too, right? So if you're in the middle of the book, I'm going to probably read you. If you're at the back of the book, ah, I'll come back to that later, right? Because uh, so much of it, like, again, you shouldn't need graphs and charts to make you be able to understand the story, but because some of the ideas are so big, it's a nice, easier way to condense it and make it a bit more understandable. Like, I'm a simpleton, especially compared to Nate over here, um, but I do like that I have <laughs> that um, those explanations, um, so it made it kind of... Like, <laughs> it made it, you know, fairly understandable and grounded, so I did appreciate that. Um, you know, and again, I deal with that, some of the future stuff. It was kind of weird. That, that that was the more complicated stuff that I had some trouble with. Um, but as we all agreed to, like some of that, you can kind of skim over because it may not. It, I'm sure it will mean something. I'm sure there will be versions of this that will apply to the current life we're living right now. Um, th- th- those weren't put in there for no reason. Right, so we'll see some of those funky hybrid mutants like Rasputin and stuff that we saw. Like they, they yeah. just were introduced for a reason, right? So there's more yeah. of those characters than meets the eye. That Chimera, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I like them too. It'd be interesting to get a recut kind of version of this where it's just chronological order, like from one life to the next. And it would take away some of the, the obviously the extra levels, but a lot of this was like jumping back and forth. Right. So it'd be interesting to see if something like kind of just put it all in order. So you're seeing that, you know, the life before the 10th one where more or whatever one where more were kind of learned stuff in the, in the future where we thought was our future, but wasn't. So it'd be interesting to kind of see it in chronological order without kind of jumping around and seeing how it flows. Um, it probably would lose some of the subtext, but it'd be interesting to see how that would work. Yeah, a version of that would be fascinating to, to see. Like, it made sense the way he built it when it was episodic issue by issue, but in, in a different type of collected format that's not the same as uh, what you have there in front of you, to have it kind of streamlined that way could be interesting to see. Uh, yeah, we didn't talk too much about the 100-year mark, but I, I don't know, I really like that. That uh, the future X-Men stuff has always kind of been intriguing to me and the fact that they're able to instead of like create entirely new characters all the time and kind of go oh this is Pagepod and they you know have lots of four wings and it's like okay you could but instead they're like no in, in the future Sinister's still doing his thing and he's still doing his cloning and he just kind of melds it together and, and cloned kind of super mutants and then you kind of try to figure out like oh Rescue looks like kind of colossus also but there's a soul sword and i wonder what else is going on with that character and and cardinal who's like a red nightcrawler who's a complete pacifist and won't find anybody so and then of course krakoa you can do a personification of krakoa who can like open up gates from his body really really good like it, it didn't end up giving me throwaway characters that can so easily happen with future X-Men. I don't know. I, 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 I felt like it was kind of throwaway, though. Like, by they, Well, they die. They're not fleshed out, but the design, the, the whoever put together the visual design, there's more the of a thought process to it. Me, draws me in because I'm now going, oh, this is easier for me to give you some kind of identity because you're a combination of characters I already know. Hmm. Rather than 
you get to see North, who's Polaris. It's Magneto in green, but Polaris is the main... Rather than saying, oh, this is a character you've never seen before and you're really not going to see for more than half an issue and they're going to die, I actually feel a bit more in a weird way because of the way they did it. I think it was clever. Yeah. I guess the only thing that let me down with the year 100 stuff is that because it ended up being from a different lifetime, it, it did feel like it ended up mattering a little bit less. Like, obviously, the the core kind of journey of it and then having uh, Logan kill Moira at the end of it, that was impactful, but... It just felt like we spent a lot of page space on something that ultimately had already happened and didn't really matter too much. Like, could have been a, a, an easier footnote, did not need to maybe have that much page, those many pages kind of spent towards it. Because when I thought it was our reality and our future, and then, you know, we've seen that a lot. We've seen a lot of, you know, our future timelines of the current reality, people trying to affect the past. I mean, that's Days of Future uh, past right there. But in, so I thought that's what we were getting. And I guess that's the obvious answer. And then he kind of pulled the swerve, which is cool when it happened. But the more I thought about it as, re- as I was rereading it, I was like, well, I don't know if I really care about reading this part because it doesn't really end up mattering. Like we, we get these characters and it's kind of cool, but the ultimate ending is pretty easy. It, like, it, it's, it's just this one thing that happens to Moira and then we, we move on pretty quickly from it. So I, yeah. Yeah, that's the ending of that life. I'm I'm certain that Sinister is up to something. Like, though, that isn't that one character around the cover. Like, isn't the one chimeric kind of character right on the cover there with the soul sword and stuff? Rasputin. Yeah, isn't he right? Like, so I think yeah, they're 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 going to come back and they're they're, they're going to be a part of this story. I think they were introduced for a reason. Like, I don't think it's by happenstance. Yeah, those characters we'll see them again. Well, that's and that's right, Adam. I feel that a lot of powers of X is not important or doesn't feel as impactful it's neat in many instances it does go into particularly the stuff particularly the the info pages for the thousand year stuff i don't care the hundred year stuff is slightly more interesting to me uh that definitely feels more of a moira life and so we're getting information from it but it's mostly razzle dazzle it is does not at all have the same doesn't have it anywhere near the same amount of impact as the Moira issue proper about Moira's lives and Moira as a character and the attack on the what's it called the what's the the mother yeah but it has a name it's the the forge or something yeah I think it's called the forge Um, those are highlights for a reason because they're about personal relationships they're about um, characters that we know and love so yeah if I were to give this a ranking I would give Powers of X kind of a meh, like maybe a 6 out of 10. Okay. It's important for you to read. The art is gorgeous. I agree with Paul. Most of the pages don't need to be read. The info pages. It's definitely a step up from Earth of X, which was just full of compendiums at the end. Of all the stuff, they just like, we're not putting this in the comic at all, but do you know where the Human Torches like, went, to, went to university? Like All this <laughs> stuff that we're like, okay, whatever. Uh, that I, I was so bored of reading. So at least it is not that belabored. Um, but yeah, uh, Powers of X, I'm like, fine, whatever. House of X, I don't know. I give that an X out of 10? What is that? An X out of X? That's not perfect, <laughs> but in terms of my enthusiasm for it, I really loved it. Hmm. Um, I was just looking at the, the kind of the last page 
well, I guess last story page of this uh, of the hardcover, and that great moment of uh, Charles and Magneto looking out at what they've done and looking at you know the the fireworks and everything, and that you know that last look of the both of them with their helmets on, just saying, just look at what we have made, and it. I feel like they have like I want the ending of this entire experiment to just be kind of a flip of that. Um, like what what happens next after that moment? Like you know, like this is all look at what we have made, and I kind of want that when we're all done to be a just look at what we've done, and maybe it's not maybe it's horrified, like, maybe they're horrified of what it, where they are. But I'm just curious, like it just feels like a, a a perfect ending to a beginning, and I want the flip of it to be used as the ending, and maybe that's asking too much, but it just because it felt like such a, a good moment. That sounds like a Hickman thing to do. I I feel like he would have no problem doing that. A lot of this is cyclical. A lot of this is about circles, right? I mean, like if you if you go back to you know his new Avengers, like how many issues started with the same speech from Reed about you know everything dies, I and I accept this, you know, like and I mean he he uses a lot of repetition, but he uses it obviously to convey his points and also you know get a sense of um, I don't know like familiarity, and then when you see it, it, it starts to hit certain drum beats inside you. So I mean, when I was rereading uh, New Avengers the other day, every time we got that speech from Reed, it, it it did do something to me every time. Like I felt excited, I felt like you know I I felt a sense of doom, but I felt a sense of importance. So I, I'm curious, we get a sense of you know different recurring uh, aspects here. Like I remember before this whole storyline started, and they had. Um, the, the one page of uh, Moira saying, you know, read my mind and Charles reading her mind and going like, oh, and I remember that that was everywhere. And they're like, this is the most important panel of X-Men history. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? Nothing is happening here. And then when you read it and you realize what it means and what Xavier gets from her and learning about her lives and how it reframes everything that you never knew about Moira, it is so impactful but it was one of those pages that on its own meant nothing. And yet within context of the story was everything. And I don't know. I love that moment. Yeah. And, and the fact that it happens more than once, yeah. because you think what, what immediately follows is what he saw. Okay. I don't know why he's so surprised. And then it takes you so many issues for them to show you it again and go like, now that I'm done showing you everything, the final result of the year 1000. Now you get the fuller picture of it. Now you get the utter defeat, the feeling that I have of we're never going to make it. We've never made it before. We've never done it. You have to do this life way different than you were ever going to do it, Charles, including your personality will have to shift. You won't You won't be able to move towards that always peaceable, you know, uniting, uniting arm in arm with humans. Uh, it, it's not going to happen that way, the way you dreamed it. It can't because if you, we tried it and we tried it and it didn't work. Yeah. I think uh, you love that like last panel too because there might be a little piece of you that sees the Ewok party at the end of Return of the Jedi I, with the the tree houses and everything. Maybe a little piece of you thinks of that when you see that. I mean, you're the one who wants desperately to go to Kokoa, so. I do. Um, you want to go to those not... steamy hot tubs? Super steamy. <laughs> they do a lot of stuff hey, happens hot in there. Yeah, <laughs> especially between everyone and everyone. Um, yeah, the. I mean, this isn't necessarily the one panel that makes me want to go there, but sure, I absolutely do. Don't you? Don't you guys? Wouldn't you love to be a mutant to go there? I always wanted to be a mutant as a teenager and go to Xavier's Institute. Didn't you want the same thing? Don't you want that? 
It definitely looks a lot more peaceful and less scary than the mansion was because the mansion was getting blown up all the time. I still wanted to be there. I still wanted to train in the danger room. I still wanted to hang out with everybody. <laughs> so obviously, our plan at some point is that we will, you know, do you know periodic, you know, kind of reconvening to talk about where Donovex and I forget what the what the the next demarcation point was called. Uh, they have named it. I think it's Way of X is the next one uh, after X of uh, Ten of Swords. But uh, at some point, we'll kind of we will do periodic reconvenings to kind of talk about the various different books, uh, how it's kind of expanding the world that uh, Hickman started with this. I'm sure periodically we'll go back to this original text as well, but we'll kind of expand outwards. We'll talk about X Men, X Factor, X Force, uh, maybe Fallen Angels just a little bit. <laughs> Just to justify Nate's purchase. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're not. Is it over? Fallen Angels was just like a miniseries. It was done. Yeah, right. Okay. Which is which is good. It means yeah, sure. when when you go through it, there's nothing after that, so you're good. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I look forward to it. Well, thank, thanks so much, guys, for uh, taking part in this. This has been, yeah, two and a half hours. In my mind, I was like, maybe we could do an hour, an hour and a half. You know, we don't have to go as long as we usually do. No, we did. Um, but uh, it's been enjoyable. Thanks you both um, for bringing your insights. And I look forward to talking more about uh, where the X-Men have gone. Uh, you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Write the show on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.